you beat yourself up over the losses in anything. Yeah. Well, I don't get business, family, sports. Mm -hmm. Hate losing more than they like winning. If you're competitive, you count your losses more than you count your wins. One path is a long, winding, unpaved, back-breaking, bumpy, miserable road to a place called success. The other road is straight, paved, smooth, comfortable, and that road ends up in a place called failure. Welcome to the show. I am Kyle Matthews on the Matthews Mentality Podcast, where we dive into the mindset of the world's most driven founders, CEOs, business moguls, athletes, and entrepreneurs. Each episode will turn our guest wisdom into practical advice that will help you build a deeper understanding of what led them to success and the mentality behind what got them there. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of the Matthews Mentality Podcast. I'm joined today by former professional hockey player, entrepreneur, investor, most interesting man in the world, Chris Pronger. <laughs> Second most interesting man. Who was it? Was it? Was it? What was that beer Dos commercial? Equis. Dos Equis, yeah. All right, fair play. Chris is a hockey Hall of Famer, one of NHL's top 100 greatest players. He's known as the fiercest and most dominant defenseman in the league's history and has built an impressive legacy during his 19 seasons in the National Hockey League. Throughout his career, he was a four-time All-Star, won a Norris Trophy as the league's best defenseman and a Hart Trophy as the league's most valuable player, a Stanley Cup, and two Olympic gold medals. He brings that winning mentality and entrepreneurial spirit to his new venture, well-inspired travels, a boutique luxury travel company that caters to athletes, entertainers, C-suite executives, and high net worth individuals. And I, another thing I know, I know you're also spending uh, time building out your new whiskey business, The Journey. Correct. All right. We're going to talk about that with it, with your brother, Sean, and their partner at Niagara Falls Craft Distillers. Chris, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You, can, you Do you get to Nashville a lot? I've been here a little more uh, the last couple of years. Uh, our son, a lot of there's a lot of Nashville kids in his uh, class and, and in his fraternity. So we... We've been here for a couple of birthday and this parties. And this is at SMU? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, down in Dallas. Well, I figured if you're slanging whiskey, you gotta, you yeah. got gotta to make it to Whiskey Row every now and then. Absolutely. I have obviously a, a lot of experience being around athletes. I get some family, uh, different sport, but very similar uh, career in that sense. And uh, there is no typical day post-playing, but I'm going to ask you the question, like what does what a typical day look like for you nowadays? I, I think the biggest mistake, athletes make when they retire is they don't create a routine like they had well it doesn't have to be the same routine but just create a routine a schedule as a professional athlete you run on someone else's time somebody's telling you where to be what to do how to do it uh, and then when you retire you you don't have that so you need to create a routine whether it's getting up getting getting a workout in or just creating some sort of routine that you know your body's going to be doing something uh, you know, we're all going to be sore. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, motion lotion. get, get busy, get doing something, uh, and, and get, get a sweat, get a lift, get, get some type of physical activity, get the mind, get the blood going, get the mind racing, and then create some type of purpose, whether you'd like to read, you know, whether you're taking time off or whether you're trying to find a job, whether you're immersing yourself in a new job, you know, Push your chips in and be invested in it. Learn learn what you need to know about whatever XYZ job is and take the, the same time and the same care that you had to your previous prof profession, whether that's sports or what have you, and then do the same thing in that one. And, and results typically do, uh, do come at some point. I've been 
blessed in terms of my family. They've done a good job uh, transitioning from, you know, playing to civilian life, right? And one of the things, uh, and we'll just dive into the mindset behind uh, one of the biggest challenges I've seen, not just within the family more so, but my teammates from school are just watching a lot of ex-athletes. Uh, obviously, my exposure a little more NFL. Yours, obviously, the NHL. But is you touched on when you're playing, you're on someone else's time, and really they're creating the schedule for you. And I experienced this just for four years. And even then I had this transition period where – Playing a sport is not easy, so I don't want anyone to ever hear me say, oh, it's easy, because it's not. It's very difficult, not to mention just the athletic gifts you have to have to excel at a level like you. <clears throat> but what's what there, part of what could be, I would say, was easier for me was you get to turn off your brain, and somebody is basically um, creating that discipline for you where it's like, okay, here's you're going to be here at 6 o'clock in the morning and you're going to lift for two hours, and here are the lifts you're going to do, and here's the amount of reps you're going to do, and here's the weight you're going to do. And then at 8 o'clock, you're, go you're going to go here, and you're going to eat this. And then at uh, 11 o'clock, here's the film, and you're going to watch this film. And so where I'm going is like you, you, you said it earlier, is like you're on their schedule, but they're making the schedule. One of the big challenges I see, and, and you talk about routine, and I'm going, to, I'm going to layer on another word, discipline, is you have to have discipline to stick to a routine. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of athletes come out and you would think they they have discipline, but they have discipline in the sense that they can follow someone else's routine, but they really really struggle to create their own. Was that something you struggled with you come out or it just came no, easy to you? There's there, there's two camps. You see the guys who retire and say they never want to work out again and they get fat and they're just massive. And then there's the other camp that are like, I, I enjoyed working out. I enjoy my health. I enjoy being active and mobile and, and those people tend to set up structure and set up a routine that they can adhere to that, that is getting their days started on that confident note, something that they know they've been lifting, they've been working out their whole lives. They just stick in the routine. And was that you? Uh, yeah, I always, uh, I mean, I've pretty much there, you know, when I got hurt and I had to retire, there was that first year where I didn't do much, just I couldn't. And you just, I mean, it's just every day on to the next day of, you know, darkness and depression mm -hmm. and all the things until one day I'm like, looked in the mirror, I was getting a little skinny soft. And uh, I'm like, yeah, we need to do something about this. And just was like, all right. It's just like that. You flip the switch, you're like, all right, I'm going to work out. And whether we, whether we, I feel good or not, man, I'm going to work out, and you just layer a day on and top. And there's of different each day. levels of that. We're talking. We're on a mentality podcast, so the mentality behind. Uh, real quick, walk the audience through. What are you doing? It's like a, a hardcore 75 or what was? Oh this? yeah, I'm doing 75 hard right now. 75 just, hard. Uh, you know, two workouts. That my my friend in St. Louis, Andy Frisella, created this program. Um, he's one of the owners of First Form Supplement Company in St. Louis, based in St. Louis, and uh, it's two workouts a day, one lifting weights. The second one is outside. Uh, each workout is 45 minutes, and if you want to work outside and lift again or you want to walk or you want to run or you, you kind of do whatever, uh, it's read 10 pages of a nonfiction book, uh, whether it's a biography or uh, leadership, mentality, whatever uh, whatever interests you. Uh, you get it, no cheap meals, no alcohol, um, and a, a set nutrition plan for 75 days for 75 days um a progress picture every morning and really it's again the mentality the mindset the the discipline to okay 
A, not forget, but create a routine around these things that you need to accomplish and set them up and you just start kind of working through how to set up how you want to do it and how you want to achieve all these, these set goals. And now I'm on day 19, I think it is. I was going to say, how many days are you in? Day 19, and, you know, it's, you feeling just, good? It's, it's, starting, you know it's, it's starting to become plug and play. You get up at 5, you take your picture, you go down to the gym, you get your workout, you then, you know, you just map out your day based around all the things that you need to accomplish. And Do you ever have moments, um, and I'll ask this question a lot throughout the podcast and, and really related to different periods of your life as we kind of go through it, but even – is 75 hard? Are there moments where, you know, there's a voice in your head just saying, Hey, well, you don't need to do this. Like, stop, take it easy. Take it, take a cheat day. You're already doing enough. Cause I, I think a lot of people have that. I'll speak yeah. for myself. There's moments where it's like, oh, your reptilian brain's telling you to slow down. Um, do you ever get that? Yeah. I think it's more the athlete in me of, all right, I'm doing this. I'm doing it. And I'm not, you know, I'm going to adhere to, the discipline that's needed and the, and the structure that's needed to accomplish the goal, which is 75 days of doing all these things in a row. Uh, but it's also having that structure and that detail of uh, your life still goes on. I was at a member guest last weekend. I was at uh, my Canadian launch for the whiskey the week before that. I was on a hunting trip with my son and some of his frat buddies the week that weekend. Life goes on. It's just a matter of incorporating the program, you know, I got up every morning at, we were out hunting. I'd wake up, they had a gym there, nice, thankfully. There so I'd work, I'd get up at six, go get my workout in, meet everybody for breakfast, go for the hunt, go for a walk, uh, you know, read my book, you know, just get things, you know, you're on a set schedule on a timeline, just figure out a way to shoehorn it in and, and map it out. Okay, here's when I can do it. Here's when they have their downtime. It would feel good to go take a nap because I was walking in the bush all day <laughs> shooting, but... I got to go do my why. And it's just a matter, again, mindset and discipline of you committed to do something, now do it. I've Follow noticed, especially it. with athletes, and this is a compliment, the word I use is manic. They either do, they're all in or they're not in and all. And, and again, that's exactly what my wife says, no matter what it is, whether it's building a whiskey company, whether it's working out, yeah. whether training, you immerse yourself in it and you just like, I'm all in. I'm, I need, I want to learn everything about the business. I want to learn everything about, 75 hards, training, you know, mapping things out and just researching things to, to make sure that you put your best foot forward and, and are able to accomplish your goals. So you're all in everything you do. Let me ask, uh, going back to when your kid is, was that the case? No, there were, there were moments there, there, there were certainly failures where you learn you didn't invest, you didn't put the effort forth, you didn't train properly, you didn't do the most you could to prepare for what was the next step or the next stage in your career, your tryouts, all those different things. I got cut from teams. And I was going to say, is there a specific failure that yeah, sticks I, out? Yeah, uh, I was trying out for the under-17 team in Ontario, and I got cut from our local regional camp. And I was like, uh, and some of, you know, as always, there was some, I think, political, political things going on. I didn't play for the team that they wanted me to play for the year before, and... There was some bad blood and and some 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 side issues going Can, on. Canadians, but I also Canadians tend to be very nice, but not when it comes to until hockey. they're not nice. No, I was gonna say not. <laughs> but hockey is uh, it's something else. I, you know, it's funny because at first I'm like, well, Canadians that sounds very vindictive. I don't know. Yeah. I know some Canadians are very nice, but then it's like, well, this is hockey. It's yeah. different. So I get cut from this team, and I had played high school hockey the year before, 
with all my buddies. And we went to the Ontario Championships, and, and a scout saw me playing. He's like, oh, my God, this kid's great. And I got cut from this camp, and this particular scout got two wild cards that he could use to mm. invite kids that he thought either got overlooked or uh, either didn't have a good camp or, or what, whatever. And he used one of those wild cards on me, who then went on to make the team yeah. <laughs> and then went on to you know XYZ after that. And so... Uh, I've been I've become really good friends with that scout. Sure, and we always laugh about it, talk about what could have been and and what became. And yeah, you did more than X Y Z. We're going to talk about X Y Z, but uh, walk us through because I, I don't know is when you get cut from a team in Canada. If it's like America's, what is it? They put a list on the door, and you walk up and either see your name or don't see your name. Like what? What? How did you they, know you got cut? Uh, it, it depends on the age group. In this particular instance, they just call you in. We're not taking you. Here's, here's our reasons why. I'm like, okay, sure. Wait, no, no, no. Hold on. Time out. Uh, they call you in and are you walking in thinking like, yeah, I'm good. And you say, I I mean, I, I thought I had a good camp. Um, and you sit down in a chair and they say, we're not taking you. Like what goes through your mind and body in that moment? I was a little defeated. I was pissed off. Um, you were 16, roughly? I was 15. Uh, I was 15. Yeah, I was okay. 15. Um, no, I was pissed off. I I was pissed off at them. I was pissed off at myself knowing I didn't get into the best shape possible. I didn't train the way I should have trained to prepare. Um, you know, I was looking at all the other political bullshit that I knew was going on behind the scenes. Uh, and And then... One of the guys who cut me wanted me to try out for his team the next year. <laughs> yeah, you're like, no, <laughs> no thanks, thank pal. you. I'm good. <laughs> you're good. Do, would you say that that moment uh, benefited you in the long run? Perhaps it provided you fuel to whether it was working out or playing or going against some of the guys who made it and you were cut, you know, at that next camp when you were the wild card. Do you think that actually long term, that I don't want to say failure, but that adversity? Uh, actually was better for you in the long run? Well, absolutely. I tell my kids all the time, adversity, failure, however you want to describe yeah. it, is good for you as long as you're learning. As yeah. long as you take something from the defeat, the failure, the mistake, whatever you want to call it, and use that as fuel. I use that as fuel every day I trained. You know, you get tired on the bike, like somebody else is training harder than you, and you push that much harder. And you push past that edge of... I think I'm tired. No, I'm not tired. And you just push and push and push to train. Just when I was playing, I'm like, I'm not going to be the guy to get tired. You're going to get tired before I'm going to get tired. I can stay out here all day and we can have our matchup and we can play the game and you can, you're going to get tired well before me. Cause I'm going to train harder than you. I'm going to prepare harder and make sure that I'm able to outlast you and, and, and ultimately then grind on you and wear on you. Uh, to do my job to the best of my ability. And it, you know, it's like a Michael Jordan story. He got cut from his, he was probably, if I had to guess, 16 from his sophomore or freshman basketball team. It's, it sounds like similar period. But before that, had, had uh, you know, looking at your childhood, had hockey come easy to you? Were you always one of the better, if not best players? Yeah. You know, I was, you know, for being fairly tall, I was a pretty good skater. I uh, could see the ice, vision, passing, all that kind of stuff. So I was always one of I, – I moved up a couple age brackets at, at various times during my minor hockey career. I uh, played with my brother one year who's two years older and, and kind of bounced around a little bit like that. Um, so And then high school hockey, I 
was 14 and 15 years old playing against 19, 20 year olds. So playing against quasi men, young adults, and and you know playing up like that, you you have to learn leverage. I was not always a thick kid. I was fairly skinny in high school. So you got to you got to know leverage. You got to know angles. Trying to push around. You know, I'm 140 pounds sopping wet, and I got to push around a 200, 220 pound guy. But I'm tall and I got big shoulder pads, so I may look big. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to kind of play the part before now, yeah, you it, it's, fill into it's, the part. It's interesting how that works. Is um, I, I'm obviously not your size, but uh, you know, when I was high school, even college, they had to put me on a weight gaining program where I had to drink these shakes. Like I had to drink five, six thousand. I eat five to six thousand calories a day. Now it's the opposite. It's like man, I just got to keep it off. Yeah. Yeah. Know? Exactly. It's maintaining and and <laughs> yeah. not. Letting excess get to you, but it's uh, so you grew up in Ontario, Canada. What was what was your childhood like? Small town Canada, uh, Dryden, Ontario. Uh, now I think it's a, a thriving sixty five hundred people. Uh, pa- pulp and paper mill town. Uh, grew up, you know, town situated around around uh, Wabagoon Lake. Uh, you know, just you know, pretty. Pretty easy going, small town uh, vibe, you know. And hockey is the, the the sport. Hockey's the sport. All you know, in the winter time, my brother and I would either be in the basement, we'd be in the driveway, we'd be on the road playing road hockey. There was an outdoor rink a block away. We'd be out there skating, or we'd be at the local arena, uh, you know, having more structured practice or games. Uh, but but in the winter, you know, fall, winter, early spring, it was just hockey, 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 and then it was. You know, baseball in the late spring, and then it was golf in the summer, uh, and then I played a little bit of volleyball in high school, and then it was just hockey. And and but but getting the four seasons and getting that time away from the game, I think really helped me a harness my athleticism and playing other sports and getting that break and giving your body a break from the grind of hockey. It's not a natural movement your body makes in skating. You know, it's hard on your hips and your back and things of that nature. So getting away and just being a kid. You know, I think a lot of times I tell mine, I'm like, you got to be a kid. Because yeah. guess what? Pretty soon, you're yeah, not a kid. You the, you <laughs> and nobody's there to help you. So enjoy the moments of being a kid and uh, and have fun doing it. We, we talk a lot about nature versus nurture, specific to mindsets and, and mentality and all that. Would your success uh, in focusing on hockey as a, as a young kid where you're playing up divisions or and I, I, I understand you got cut at one point, but generally you probably were very, very good at every stage. Um, was that really a function of you just being so physically and athletically blessed? Or would you say you had the mindset that you displayed later on in terms of like, well, I'm just going to outwork, I'm going to outlash you, I can go all day, I'm all in. Was that something that you also had at 10, 12, 14 years uh, old? I always had good cardio. I wasn't necessarily a specimen, <laughs> so to speak, but I had good cardio. I could I could skate forever. Um, but one of the things that I, I did is, is I picked up on things. I had really good hockey sense. I knew where, where everybody was going to be on the ice, so I was able to use that ability to understand the game to lessen my workload to make sure I was always in the right spot so I wasn't running around trying to chase the play. I was in the spot where I thought it was going to be or where was the most dangerous area. And and from that, I just you know played high school for two years. Then I played junior B for a year. Then I played junior A for two years. Then I played pro. And just with each one of those years got better, challenging yourself with better caliber players, older players, 
And then when I got to junior B, I was, I was in this crux of, do I go play junior or do I follow my brother and go play college hockey? And which one was going to be best for me and my development? And ultimately, we chose the junior route. Had I gone the college route, I don't know what would have happened. Obviously, a lot of things could go on yeah. in college, and you're only playing 32 games. It's just There's much less rigorous, time. much yeah. less like an NHL schedule, and I wanted to play and, and kind of immerse myself in, in that. And I got a, a deal with the team that drafted me that they would pay for my schooling if I didn't make it. So it was kind of, I it got the best sense. of both worlds. Well, we're definitely going to cover your hockey career, but before we do um, – if I was sitting down having some journey whiskey with some of your teammates from uh, your youth hockey days, how would they describe you? Not just not so much as a player, but uh, from your mindset at the time. I'll lead you yeah. here. I'll lead you here. Is uh, I coach seventh grade football this fall, and you know there's 80 kids on the team, and 70 of them are seventh graders, yeah. right? Like they're you know they're there. You you got to get their attention. You know they they want to do well, but they have a million other interests. But there's yeah. you know there's a t- tiny handful of kids that even though they're in the seventh grade, they're locked in. They're yeah. asking, they're asking questions. They're they're disciplined. Like they really take to coaching. They're you know they're they're much mentally older. You feel than, like they're generally interested. Generally in interested. your answer. Yeah, yeah. And and even even um, whether it's again pushing through adversity, whether it's an injury or. You could even see it in conditioning at the end of practice. Yeah. They're they're just as tired as everyone else, but you could see they're pushing themselves. Yeah, and it's really it's, it, it's they don't an, need you to push them. They no, they're doing yeah. It and so so that's what I say is I don't want to lead you in your answer, but really to kind of give you a sense of the question I'm trying to ask, which is um, if I was sitting with your teammates or even your coaches, uh, and uh, again we had a couple drinks of journey, so they might you know, might be a little more candid. A little looser with, with their verbiage. Yeah. Uh, how would they, how do you think in your opinion, would they describe you from a mindset at that time? Uh, I would say, you know, one of the things that my coaches always told me is I would, you know, they would be describing the drills. And I used to go to the library when I was a young kid and I'd look at hockey books and hockey practice books and look at all the, the practice, you know, two on one, three on one, just look at all the, the graphs and all the things. So when they were describing, I would already be gone moving all the pucks because mm-hmm. I knew what, what drill we were doing. And I knew why we were doing that drill and what outcome you were trying to get from that and what they're trying to ingrain in you and teach you because I already read all the books. The same books they were reading, I, was, I had already read. So when, when these practices were, were kind of built out and these drills were put in place, I already knew them. So I was, and I used that as a way to kind of hone my hockey sense and have an understanding of, well, if everybody's doing these drills why are they doing these drills and why are they funneling everybody to this specific area? And it's just, you know, cause and effect and you, and you reverse engineer. Okay. Well, if everybody's going there, well, where do I got to be to negate that or stop that as a defenseman? And then from that, how does that translate to openings? If I do create a, a turnover in that specific instance, then where do I go with it? Who's going to be open? Why, where are they going to be and why are they there? And just, I was always a very detailed kid yeah. and, Therefore, I held myself to a high standard, but I, but unfortunately for some of my teammates, I held them to the same standard, and they got into a lot like, of yeah. arguments with parents of you know well, why are you always yelling at my kid? I'm like because I'm trying to push them because I want to win, yeah. and you know so, so everything so, was about winning, you know, but putting the time and effort in to create the outcome you want. So to be 12, 13, 14 years old, going to the library to study hockey practice books is 
I think you'd agree, probably not normal. No. Right. And, no. and, and then that showed up at practice where you already knew the drill and the coaches were explaining it to the other 10, 15, 20 people on the team. And so, you know, again, I'm going to put that part of that is it, it seems like the discipline, the mentality, <clears throat> a lot of that's just nature. Yeah. It, it was there. Yeah. Okay. There wasn't something where you'd, your dad sat you down or your mom and said, this is how you need to do it and, and enforce that. No, no. And I had my nickname growing up was chaos. So. Chaos. I was going to add. I was going to ask. So that's Zach. Zach is, my guy, Zach, he's a, he's a big hockey guy. So he's like, you yeah. got to ask about his nickname. Yeah. Chaos. Nickname was chaos. And yes. What, now, was, was that because of what you did on the ice? On and off the I was going to say, was that because of what you did on the ice? It was actually more off. And then it uh, became on too. God bless, God bless your parents then. <laughs> That's funny. Yes. Was there uh, anything, uh, any one story as a kid off the ice that you'd share that you find you, looking back is, is funny or um, you, you don't want your kids to hear it? Yeah, I mean, they know some of them, <laughs> but I mean, it's just a lot of it. A lot of it was on the ice, some of it off, more just us, our group, just being donkeys and yeah. playing hockey. I mean, like we would play road hockey. I was probably 13, 14. We would have legit hockey fights. So with our friends, okay. Where you drop your, you know, you just grab on. Yeah. You got like a big puffy mitt on. It probably feels like a UFC glove, maybe a little less because you can still feel the knuckles. I mean, and you're just legit hitting your friend. (laughs) It's a great way to (laughs) fight better. Yeah, fight better. If it hurts, fight better. So real quick, street hockey is that? Is that in the summer? You got rollerblades? No, it's it's on. So in in Dryden. It's so cold and it snows so much that the road is basically ice. Yeah. And then they create the natural boards by plowing the snow. You create these boards. So we would be hitting each other into these big snow drifts. Um, then we'd be fighting and be screwing around. And it was always like. This is why, you know, it, I know America hockey is is growing, right? Yeah. But American players are just at a disadvantage. Like uh, maybe, maybe in Minnesota, maybe Northern Wisconsin. Like you yeah, just Northern not, Minnesota's. It's pretty close to my hometown. They, not, they would get a similar. Okay, so like a very small, and, per- yeah. small part of the country. There's not a lot of people there, though. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's right. In Northern Minnesota, this is true. So, I mean, I, I don't want to call it an advantage. Most people would say growing up in a place where the roads froze over, you could skate on, is an advantage. But it is very much so in a hockey sense. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, just the the sponge puck would slide better. It would, Ball. We would play street hockey too. Um, you know, we we pretty much played from September to April. Mm-hmm. We would play, and then you know you're and, and to, to what you said older. in the summer, you get to be a kid. Yeah, and a, a kid in Canada is what is it? Fishing. Yeah, fishing, swimming, golfing, yeah. farting around like me and my brother. We had a three wheeler. Can't do that now. You need a four wheeler. But three-wheeler back then, when all that was going on, we had three-wheeler. We were driving around the pits and screwing around. Um, you know, just being kids. Yeah, just hanging out with your buddies. I mean, throwing rocks, throwing rocks. At just tree, like staying just, busy. And this was just, be, yeah. I'd leave my house at, you know, that you, you wish you could go back and have your kids be a part of your yeah. life growing up. I, I would leave my house at 8 o'clock, and I'd come back at 5. And not one time would you ever think, think yeah. that you're not coming home now. you got to no. schedule a play date. you got to... Have every you got a tra- piece of technology. You have, you know, a, you have one of those they- Apple tag t- yeah. tra- trackers on their belt loop 
you know, because you're yeah. like, oh, where are they? Oh, my God, where uh, are they? What's going on? Not a, not a lot of uh, Call of Duty gaming back then, right? No, no. Uh, my VIC-20 was not. <laughs> it, it didn't have the uh, processing capability. Yeah, exactly. That was about the extent All right, so, so that's as a kid. Now let's talk about becoming an, an adult as it relates to your, your playing days. You, you had mentioned you were thinking you were going to go to college but decided not to. Kind of walk us through what that looked like, and, and eventually getting to the NHL. Yeah, so back then, I, you could spend four to eight hours at a junior training camp and not lose your eligibility. Technically, junior players are professionals making $19 a week. Sweet. Yeah, it's a hell of a payday. Sounds like a good deal. So in the NCAA's brain power, they decided that they're pros, which makes no sense, but whatever. It's probably um, self-serving. Yes. Yeah. Oh, no, it, 100%. They it, didn't it want more people or less, going back and forth. Yeah, and, I was going to say, there's, no, so there's always a reason. The rules have kind of changed a little bit uh, since then. But yeah, I could spend four to eight hours at training camp, so I got to practice for two days uh, with the group. And we had, uh, on my team in Peterborough, we had a first-round pick. We had a second-round pick. We had, a, you know, we had some players that had been drafted, so I had an understanding as to how good these guys are that are getting drafted and and then some kids my age uh were highly touted and you know you get to skate with them and play with them and you're like oh come from a small town in the middle of nowhere like you, I know, get you gotta remember pre-internet uh you know yeah. i'm getting a weekly little pamphlet called hockey digest where you get all your information about last week yeah. <laughs> in the sport and there was like a little tab on the ohl that gave you like a snippet of oh there was a bench clearing brawl on da 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 and we really didn't know much about the league. And a, a friend of ours had gone a couple years before that. And, you know, he was a fighter and da da da, da all this stuff. So you get, you get jaded with perception and, and obviously somebody else's ideology behind it. And I went and I'm like, man, this is great. I'm getting to play against all these top players, all these high prospects. And I'm like, I fit in. I don't feel out of place. And, and unfortunately, I had to go back to Junior B. If I didn't play Junior A, I had to go back to Junior B and spend another year in a lesser league mm -hmm. and just really not be challenging myself and, and, and stunting my development. So in all of this, um, I might need to take a step back in a year or two, even before college age being 18, you were, correct me if I'm wrong, you were away from your family now? Yeah, so when I played, I left home at 15, uh, going into grade 11. And so that's the... Focus on hockey full time. Yeah, went Got moved to, moved twenty hours away from my hometown to play junior B in Stratford. Uh, lived with a uh, a lady in Stratford, and how was that? It was I'm not, not living, it was I mean, hard being away. From yeah, it was hard. The first year was hard. It you was, and your brother uh, were pretty close. Yeah, and he was living in uh, Thunder Bay at the time. Oh, hold on, was he gone yet? I think he was. I think he had already committed to go to Bowling Green, but was finishing his last year in, in Thunder Bay. And then, um, then I was trying to make my decision, seeing how his year went. Um, all the while, I started kind of in the middle my first year in junior B, and then by the end of the year, I was already ready for that next blossoming. Step. Yeah, still de I developed and kind of came through the league and and kind of was at the top of my learning curve, and just understanding having to go back and it was going to be a step back and it was just going to be what am i doing were there any moments when you were away from your family and for a lot of people it just shows up as homesickness but that you questioned how bad do i really want to do this is it worth it you know because the comforts of being around your your mom your dad your brother 
some people, uh, I could speak from a football sense, they just kind of pack up and go home one day. Did that ever yeah. cross your mind? I didn't. From a, I, I love the hockey side of it. It was just more that first year. I got a little homesick. Uh, you know, once a, once our season was over, I went back home and and finished high school my eleventh grade year mm -hmm. uh, back home. We had two two months left, um, which and then after that, I was like, all right, I'm done. I'm good. I moved moved I moved to Peterborough, lived with a great family, had my own little setup, and uh, you know that first year in Stratford, I'm riding the city bus to school. Like they kind of had me set up in a bad location because I was the only guy from our team living in this area. So I couldn't get a ride from any of the older guys. I so, couldn't. Yeah. So I'm taking the city bus to school. I'm doing all this stuff. And, you know, it, I was kind of a little bit on an, on an island, uh, which probably didn't help them <laughs> and and created, I think, some of the homesickness because I wasn't near any of the other guys. Yeah, I couldn't get to them. Teammates. I didn't have a car. So unless you were at practice, you basically were alone physically yeah. and mentally. Yeah. And she was a widow. So it was just me and her. And I'm in the basement. She's upstairs, you know. So it was just um, not ideal for social interaction and, and things like that. Yeah, you know? development in that regard. So you're at you're at the Peterborough Pete's. Uh, you have this experience again. It seems like the hockey was good, but maybe not so much the. Yeah. So my mom was a teacher. My dad was an accountant. So I was always pretty good in school. And so I was trying to fast track through high school, and in Ontario at the time. There was what was known as grade 13, which was your OAC year. You could crunch that into grade 12 so that you could – most of my friends did five years of high school. I was trying to do four to then go to college and get it done. Uh, so I still fast-tracked through my first year in junior. So when I was – my draft year, my second year, I was actually going to university. So I'd already graduated yeah. and took a couple classes at Trent University in Peterborough. And, and this kind of leads into – a big moment in anyone's life, obviously yours, is being drafted in the NHL uh, second overall, right, by uh, Hartford Whalers. But just real quick, how does that process play? Like, when do you know, does someone, you know, scout or a coach say, hey, by the way, you might, like, you're, you're trending to being a draft, uh, and not just an eligible, I mean, like, someone who's actually going to get drafted. And then as it got closer, did you have any inclination what it looked like that you you may go very very high in the draft to take it back a step when i was playing in stratford in our um junior b league there was three or four high highly recruited ohl players i was one of them i think i was rated second overall in the ohl draft and told them i'm not going i'm gonna go to college so i didn't get picked till like the sixth round but i was rated second overall so all these other guys are going then they start playing and then ultimately i go so we're all now lumped into, well, that's going to be the next group of mm -hmm. the NHL draft. And, and some of us uh, made it and some, some of these kids, you know, it's, it's like anything. You got to keep developing. You got to keep getting, you know, the best kid at 13 isn't always the best no. kid at 18. In fact, it almost never is. Exactly. Right? So, you know, whether that kid's gone through puberty faster than yeah. everybody else or what have you. I mean, there's all kinds of different reasons. But a lot of those guys that I went into the OHL with, a few of us were high picks, but a lot of guys didn't even get drafted. Were you always, uh, you're, for the audience's sake, you're 6'6", six, six, yep. like a big guy, right? And, and a lot of big guys, not athletic, but you're also known for being big and athletic. Was that, were you always that? Were you a late bloomer? Was it something you just, you, you know, how did your development 
physically compare with where you ended up? Yeah, I I was always athletic. I could always pick up sports fast. Um, and were you always tallest in your class? Always or? one of the tallest, mm -hmm. if not the tallest in the class. And when everybody stopped, I just kept going. Got it. So you're just big. Yeah. And I was super skinny as a kid growing up. I mean, super skinny. And uh, when I when I got drafted, the year that that so I obviously played a lot that year going into the draft and my draft year after the Memorial Cup which is our the, the big tournament at the end of the year I was 6'5 167 pounds That's so I can tell you how skinny I was and then I I you probably were pretty ripped though oh I was shredded <laughs> <laughs> hopefully you got some pictures uh, yeah. then then by the by the time the draft came a month month and a half later I was 185 pounds yeah you were went into camp I was 200 pounds but still six six 200 I'm like you know that that first year of pro I grew an inch so I was still growing you're playing against grown men. you know and I'm playing against grown men and just the league back then was a lot older and so were, just, they, were they like smoking cigarettes in the locker room? Not quite, not quite. But I had a few beers in the locker room, yeah. and <laughs> just not just only be between periods two and three, not one. Yeah, and two, exactly, though, right, exactly. Yeah, there were still guys smoking, just not between periods. No, I'm thinking that, I, I say cliche, it, but I'm thinking like some Russian players. Oh, yeah. in the oh no, hundred percent. They were. Oh no, they still did. Yeah. Um, right, so, so your first two years, you're with the Hartford Whalers. What was that like? I mean, obviously, you're touching on how physically it was an adjustment, but. What's it like? Uh, what's going through your head? You're a professional athlete. Again, probably not what the guys are getting paid now, but, you know, making money yeah. and uh, playing on the big stage. Yeah, it was, again, you know, you, you, you go from finding comfort in Peterborough as you kind of mature and develop, and then you're going to a new environment, 19 years old, not of age, in Hartford, not a whole lot going on, mm -hmm. pretty quiet, and now it's, you know, much more quiet, but... Back then, having a team and UConn was in its craze, mm -hmm. and you know all that stuff. So, as a coming into a professional sports league, I'm thinking, all right, we're going to be on the front page of the paper. We were on like page six. Yeah. UConn basketball, UConn's women's basketball. Uh, I mean, four or five pages of sports page, and then there's a little blurb I'm about sure, the Whalers, sure and I'm like, you're you're between uh, where's a Boston and New York, so I'm sure oh, yeah. they, they talk about those teams. We would our games when we played the Bruins, half Bruins fans, half yeah. Whalers fans. Play the Rangers, half Rangers fans, half Whalers fans. I mean, it was, you know, they were good in the fact that our building was sold out, but it was like, okay, they may be overtaking our own building. Hold on, I gotta. If you're listening, you gotta Google Chris Pronger. You know, draft day. You had the sweetest mullet. <laughs> the short I, line. But, I had but some here, good he, hockey hair, Bruin. Dude, it was. And the best part is that style has come full circle yeah. back. I love so, it. So, you know, half the kids I coached this year had mullets, and I was just, you know, I was always messing with them, like, what, what, you run out of money halfway through your haircut, you know? Yeah. But uh, but now they'd see that picture, is like, man. You love know, it. Yeah, you call a, it hockey like, hair, mullet, yeah. whatever. Um, just, yeah, you were just swagging out. My, just my like, boys grew out a little bit of a mullet for lacrosse, and they're playing high school. And Did you like it, or were you like, what are you doing? No, that was that was the look. <laughs> That's I mean, some look. of the guys I played high school hockey with, man, they had sick mullets. I'll tell you, my dad, my dad played football, pro football, and he had. I mean, he he rocked a mullet for like seventeen years, and I still give him a hard time. <laughs> you know, but it was great. I, I I was looking at some photos of you the other day. I mean, you look so young. I mean, but you, how old were you? Uh, I was eighteen. Eighteen Fresh years faced, old. 
It's a baby face assassin. Six six. <laughs> yeah, you were. Six six just got north of two hundred pounds. You enter the league. How was that adjustment from a from from a pure playing against you know respectfully just the best of the best? Being a structure guy, it, it was difficult and easy at the same time. Difficult in the sense that you're playing against men. And you're playing against the best in the world. There's not as big a drop off as you may get in junior. So you you know you got to adjust in that regard. But it's also they're smarter. They know the system. They know where they need to be. So you don't have to wait for them to be there. They're there. They're professional. So playing the game, it's you know it's routine. It's function. It's we go through these breakout drills. We do all these things. It's actually like so a better it, experience. It becomes yeah. It becomes you don't have to think. It's subconscious that that guy's going to be there. Huh. And when he's not there, you're like, where were you? Why weren't they there? It's more the exception than Correct. the rule. Exactly. While so when you were younger, it, it sounded like you would get frustrated when teammates didn't see what you saw or or prepared the way you prepared. It, Correct. If I'm hearing you correctly, Correct. when you got to the NHL, you were around professionals. And it was a matter of that part. You know, the structure side was easy. Then it was just a matter of playing the game at that level and knowing the speed of the players, the strength of the players. And then learning the league and learning the players and, and their habits mm -hmm. and, and understanding. You're just gaining a little bit more experience. Was there ever a moment, you know, you, you hear a lot of players talk about this regardless of sport, but that moment is kind of like welcome welcome to the NHL moment where <laughs> it, it could have been a hit you took or yeah. you got beat where you're just like, oh, shit, like I, I'm at another level now. Yeah, I think it was uh, my first year in Boston Garden. I think Ray Bork might have played 38 minutes and Cam Neely scored a couple goals. And you're just seeing the level that they can take it to when they step on the gas and when they're like, all right, we're, we're going to win. You know, we're, we were kind of that wanted to be a playoff team, but we weren't quite there yet. We didn't have the horses. And you're just like, when you play a team that has the horses, when they put, put their foot on the gas, you, it's next level. You, you know, you know what you're in for. They, yeah, they call you know it's a, you hear playoff football, playoff basketball, but playoff hockey's a thing too. Like yeah. it's, it's just a different speed, yeah. right? And so it sounds like even though it wasn't in the playoffs when you played those teams or those players, and they really and maybe it's a regular season game, but towards the end they're like, okay, we're gonna win now. They're just yeah. yeah, it's like a rivalry game. You're like, all right, this is the game, boys. Everybody's prepared to to do what it takes. Regular season, then you get to the playoffs, and it's like, all right. You got guys diving in front of pucks with their face. You've got, I mean, it's just playoff hockey. Guys playing with separated shoulders, even broken in, bones. Even in LA, play the Kings in the playoffs, they had fans show up. Yep, and playoff hockey was different. Yep. So your two two seasons with Hartford, um, how did you how did you think it was going? And I'm going to lead into, and then all of a sudden you find out you're traded. But how did you think it was going? Think think. Mentality, yeah, uh, and then the business side yep. of mentality. Um, I I get to my year end meeting and in my contract it was like, all right, every summer I needed to go down to Hartford and train and whatever. And I'm like, I meet with the GM and he's like, you know, we're walking through the season. Hey, you're our guy. You're, we're building our team. Or you're a franchise player. We're building our team around you. And I'm like, oh, Jim, I'm not coming back here to train in the summer. I I can't do it. He's like, okay, all right, da, da, da. you're still a franchise guy. Blah blah blah. Anytime you get told you're the franchise guy, what typically happens, you're getting dealt. You're so, someone else's franchise guy. Yeah, exactly. Guy. You become someone Notice else's franchise guy. Notice he did not player. say you are the Hartford Whalers there you go. franchise you're, guy. There you go. So I was actually fishing with our head coach. He flew up to come see me, check in on me. 
we went musky fishing and, and, you know, he hung out for a couple of days and then he was flying back to Hartford, stopped in Thunder Bay, Dryden, Ontario was not exactly the easiest place to get to. So he stopped in Thunder Bay, called into the office again, no cell phones, called into the office from the payphone, and was just kind of updating the GM on, you know, the t- our time together and, you know, what he saw. And he's like, Homer, let me just stop you right there. We just traded Chris to the St. Louis Blues for Brandon Shanahan. And he's like, oh, okay, <laughs> great. Thanks for the heads up. And I so was just what it, did, does he immediately hang up the phone and call you? Or? No, no. The, so then the GM was just finishing consummating the deal. And then I can't remember. I think my agent might have called me. Said, hey, they just traded you to St. Louis. It, it kind of like one of those seminal moments when you're whatever 16 and you didn't make the team you're you're on the phone and is it was it almost like <clears throat> what come again yeah what? i was like um i was just with the head coach like four hours ago <laughs> what, what's going through your head though i mean other than confusion i was i was excited a to get out of hartford and just you know it was a the franchise was in dire straits uh to get to st louis you know at that at the time they had al mcginnis they had brett hall they were uh, kind of re- reshaping their team. They were getting aggressive free agency. They were adding, um, adding some now, veteran players. You were excited, but the fans in St. Louis might not have. We're been, not right? excited. Okay, I so. was excited. They were not excited because, unbeknownst to me, and because I Brendan thought, Shanahan, and, uh, I thought Brett Hall was the star player. Yeah. At the time, Brendan Shanahan was starting to supplant him as the star player, and was kind of the man about town. And I came walking into this as a 20, young 20-year-old, not really knowing what was going on. And all of a sudden, I'm getting, like, it's my fault that they traded him. I'm like, I don't make those decisions. Yeah, they don't care. You know, and they, I got booed for, like, the first 78% of the season. You know, I'm getting screamed at by the coach in practice. I'm getting screamed at him in between every period. I was Mike Keenan's bitch for yeah. the so, bulk of the year. It's hard enough. Um, you know, and it's easy for a casual listener to dismiss adversity. Like, oh, well, you're you're a professional, you're famous, so you're getting paid. Um, I, I I don't agree with that. I think no. it, it, anyone's job, no matter what you choose to do, whether it's your professional hockey player, you're in real estate, you're a teacher, every job has its ups and downs. And the challenges, this is just my opinion, are hard enough as is. But to think about me having to do my job, which I don't, where Immediately after doing my job, the public then like gets, gets on the critique. horn and yeah. And it, again, I, I experienced <laughs> a little of this as a kid, you know, listening to talk radio in Cleveland, Ohio and having them critique my father after his games. But like, imagine, you know, if you're, if you're listening where it's imagine doing your job and then, uh, Monday through Friday. And then on the weekend you turn on the news back in the day, you listen to the radio nowadays, social media, and just people are ripping like Man, that lesson, that history lesson, you know, Teacher Smith taught, that was awful. What is he doing? Or in it's your like ca- that Peyton Manning commercial. That, that's right. That's right. It's a great commercial. <laughs> but but in your case, it's not just critique. It's like your fans are uh, aggressively letting you know they do not want you here for, you know, when I say for right or for wrong, for wrong. And you did very much win them over. But that had to have been hard. Those those are the moments, speaking of mentality. Yeah. Those are the moments that define who you are. When you go through adversity like that for that prolonged period of time, 
there were a lot of rough days. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of nights. You know, we usually played home games Thursdays and Saturdays. So there were, I had my Thursday watering hole and I had my Saturday yeah. watering hole <laughs> after the games, typically wait, wait, getting so booed. You, you probably had just turned 21. I had just turned 21. Or you, you were still fake IDing. Yeah. It. I typically I wasn't getting ID'd. But yeah, that's true. But I, uh, you know, once I had my ID, I'm like, okay, I'm 21 now. And they'd always be like, hey, you're not 21. I'd go, actually, I am now. Yeah. You yeah. got me last oh, month. I know. Uh, but so so you were you had to work through it. Did you did you have someone that you could turn to? Would you you know not to not put, not to not be too really? Personal, I didn't like, I did didn't you, for a long time. Would and you then, call like your mom or dad? And uh, I don't mean to. Yeah, yeah, no, I wouldn't. No, your I, I never really not big on complaining. I'm not big on the woe was me. I mean, mentally was I a beaten down man? Yes. Um, your confidence is shot. You're just like heads in a tailspin. You're trying to figure out how you got to this place, how you can get yourself out. And it was really just, I, I was not good. I was just in my head. He was screaming at me. And then ultimately one day I go to the front of the plane and Mike goes, gives me a number, call this guy. I'm like, okay. Sports psychologist. Mike's your coach. Mike Keenan's a coach. Okay. Hands me this. He puts his arm around me. He's like, kid, you know. You, you need to talk to this guy. So I talked to him. I go. I talked to this guy for a couple weeks, and really just try to extract yourself out of the moment. How did you get here? How do you get back to playing without thinking and just being reactive to the situation, to the moment, and 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 really just saying, I don't give a fuck. Mm -hmm. You guys can boo me. You guys can yell at me. You guys can wait out by my car in the parking lot, and I want to fight you. And you can, but you can't. But I can't. But I can. But I can't. And now, nowadays, you can. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and challenging fans and whatever to getting to the fact where I then go out and say, you know what, do whatever you guys are gonna do. I need to get back to playing aggressive, playing my style, playing. I was gonna ask, did did that period of time did it affect your play? It sounds like oh, hundred percent. You know, you you weren't confident in your decision making. And even if, you know, for a bit, my partner would make it, you know, let's say he makes a stupid pinch. I take a three on one back. I sprawl out to try to do something and they score. That's my fault. Coach, why are you sprawling like that? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? I, I don't have time. You don't have time to think like that. You know, and I've done that move a, a thousand times since then and it works quite a bit, but it's not a thousand percent. So... Once I said that, I, then I started playing, and as I, you know, it's, you know, stupid cliches, one foot in front of another, where you have some success, then you have more success, you have more, and now your confidence starts building and growing, and now you're not even paying attention to the crowd. It also helped that we, we had just traded for Wayne Gretzky. That helps. So the attention... What do they call that guy, the great one? Yeah. Then the attention went on him, and people stopped worrying about me and Shanny and focused on him, so it, it helped. Number one, in watching how we prepared, watching how we handled the notoriety and the eyeballs and all the stuff that came with the, the great one, uh, you know, how he practiced, uh, how he prepared for games, just, you know, soaking it all in. And I was able to use a lot of that and get out of the limelight and not be the focal point to then find my game. And by the end of that season, going into the playoffs, my first year there, I, I started to play some of my best hockey and use that as a springboard. Got it. Gotten a couple fights, you know. Did got you win? Physical, yeah. 
Well, the fans. Yeah, they, they, well, then they like that. I was going to say, you should have yeah. just beat up some somebody <laughs> early. They would have like, well, I like that. Well, you're that. in your head. You're like, I yeah. don't know. It's now the time. When's yeah. the t-? You know, you just start second-guessing everything hold you're on, doing. Hold on, time out. When is the time to get in a fight on on the ice? Like, when is like... There's, there's a couple. There's one to, to defend a teammate or to seek retribution for something or to defend yourself or... If we're in a heated moment in front of the net, did two tempers flare and sparks fly? You're like, let's go, let's go. It it literally takes that. That makes a lot of sense. I, I always to, wondered: is there a strategy? Um, and let, let me take, if I may, a def- oftentimes a defense, but let's say a defenseman who wasn't as talented, where him off the ice may not as be as big of a drop-off as perhaps you, but where you're like, hey, go fight their best player and both of you guys get taken out for a couple minutes. Yeah, see, you don't need to say that because guys know. Guys know. I mean, you know, guys are constantly coming at me and guys are constantly going at you know, other you. players in that caliber just to just to try to get you off. So it's a, it's a matter of if you have somebody like me over there, I'll fight him. Yeah. You know, so then it's a fair trade-off. And sometimes you're just, you know, emotions are high and temperatures yeah, flare that, that, that and makes sense. shit happens. But typically, you know, as you mature and as you kind of understand the game within the game, you get, all right, there's some gamesmanship involved here too. I, now I'm going to tie together Wayne Gretzky fighting and mentality is, I assume when he came, part of your responsibility, whether you were told it or not, was to, what do they call it, protect him? Right, if somebody took a cheap shot on him, you might you might go over there and start yeah. something. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, we got him later in his career, so I think that side of it, respect side, and the we'll call it graciousness, mm-hmm. but you you play hard on him like that year, and then when he left and went to New York, played against him a number of times, you play hard on him, but you're not out there. But you're trying not trying. Maybe early in the career, that was you know, more of a thing. Yeah. Yeah, but even then, I mean, back in his Edmonton days, they had about seven tough guys that yeah. were there to provide support when needed. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I was growing up in L.A. I think it was, was it Robitaille. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, but but you had mentioned when he came to your team, even if it was a small amount of time, yeah, it took off some of the attention and that helped, but you, I think you had said uh, watching him prepare, watching him play, watching him deal with fans. What... What did you pick up in terms of his mentality or his mindset as, he, as, as it related to how he he approached his profession? What did you I, learn? I think just understanding the notoriety that he had, you know, the, the gravitas that came with him, um, you know, and then just the media mayhem and just the constant production every single day. He's it's always got to be great on. ones in town. Yeah. And just, the you know, from the fans to the media to, you know, kind of what that entailed and just how he – Manage it, you know, and just gave his time to the media every single. I mean, who do they want? Did he ever talk about it? Where, like, I mean, I'm sure there was a moment I can't think about top of my head. He just seemed like he always did a great job with that. Yeah, no, he did. He did a great job in promoting the league. Great job in promoting the team and himself. And and and, you know, that obviously comes from his upbringing, his parents. Mm -hmm. uh, Got a chance to know his dad very well in in some of the teams that we played on, and uh, just great people. And, and, you know, I think he treated others with how he wanted to be treated uh, in and outside of being the great one and, and people kind of gravitating towards him. 
um, you, you just see how he was able to interact and give time to the media and sit there and wait. I'm sure As there he, were a lot of times where he was like, I do want not to. want to talk to you again about the same thing. But he did. But he did. He's a, yeah, I, uh, I umpired his kids in baseball um, growing up, and uh, his daughter went to school with my youngest brother. So same town. This is out in Southern California. And really nice guy. Super fun guy. Yeah. Yeah. As Canadians, man, they have a good time. Yeah, we know how to have fun. Yes, yeah, you do. <laughs> so speaking of having a good time, you're you're on the blues. It's it's late in your first season. You're starting to it's starting to come together, springboarding into the next season, and really, um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, basically entering the prime of your career and uh, winning the Hart Trophy, which I think you're the first guy or the uh, only guy. I since, was the first defenseman, defenseman since Bobby. Orr. Yeah, since Bo since Bobby yeah. Orr. Uh, the Norris Trophy, which is best defenseman, and um, how how was that period of your life like? Like where you know you're kind of everything's hitting on all cylinders. I mean, firing yeah, on all cylinders. yeah. I think, and it goes back to what we talked about earlier about structure and discipline. Um, Al McKinnis, who was my defense partner in St. Louis, uh, started training with a guy by the name of Charles Poliquin. So, you know, I finished my second season in St. Louis, my fourth year in the league. And now Charles had come in and I was like, Hey, I want you to meet my trainer. So I walked, I go over to Al's house and I walked in the front door and it was probably, I walked six feet and Charles is standing on this side. He's like, Hey, walk towards me. I walk towards him and he goes, okay, walk back, walk back. And he goes, you got a bad left shoulder? I'm like, yeah. I'm like you got a bad left knee? I go, yeah. Like yeah, he just knew. saw me take five steps and just my gait, how my shoulder, how everything was moving. And from that point on, I, I started working out with them. I changed my diet. Uh, obviously, had to rebuild my body and just, you know, you're in the gym doing these stupid rotator cup mm -hmm. things. You know, you got five pounds. You got all these you're muscle like, heads in there. But you got all these people looking at you doing these stupid, you know, shoulder exercise and all these bands. dumb things. Yeah, yeah, bands and all these things. And I did that for like six weeks. I didn't even lift. I was doing all these rehab movements and just getting my body realigned and back together and laying on a spine roller and doing all these certain things. And then I started lifting and it was just an accumulation of summer after summer after summer doing that. And then lifting during the season and, and kind of moderating my workload by, by that third camp of coming in, I was like my, that next year I, I, uh, I was up for the Norris trophy. Then I won it the next year. Then the next year I won the MVP and, and the Norris trophy. And it was just an accumulation of, consistency and discipline each mm -hmm. and every summer. I would map out my whole summer. Here's the here's the five times I'm going to drink in the summer and just be like, all right, I have uh, this wedding and this, and it would just be like, okay, I'm going to have fun on just such and such today. day. And any every other day, my, my diet protocol or my nutrition protocol, my supplements, my this, my workouts, everything was scheduled. Everything was certain times, certain cadence, certain everything, right? And just, I got to camp that one year, man. I was picking guys up and just just moving them. Just to, How much you were weighing now? I was probably 215, but just completely yeah, just built different. Yeah. yeah, just built different. And, you know, playing 30 minutes, I still needed to be built for speed and try to chase yeah. these little guys around. Yeah. So it's not like, oh, you can bulk up. You know, it's kind of like in the last dance where he methodically added mm – -hmm you know, four or five pounds a year for like three or four years. 
uh, I mean, to a certain degree, it was just a matter of you wanted good weight where you, yeah. you're gaining it, but you're not feeling heavy and feeling mm -hmm. overloaded and things like that. So it's just a, a structured process. So And so you're, you're, you're in the prime of your career. Uh, did you guys get to the Stanley Cup for the, with the Blues? We did not. We won the President's Trophy. We got, lot, we got beat in the first round. And then the next year, I win the, the Hart and the Norris, and then the next year I snap my wrist. Mm. I I, my teammate was trying to ice a puck and hit me, and I got what is known as a nightstick fracture. So a guy, you know, a cop coming down with a nightstick, you put your arm up, and it shatters your... Uh, your yeah, and so you, I, do you have a plate in there? They put a plate on yep. it. Uh, and then we were getting ready. This is right before the playoffs. So they put a plate in it, and, all right, you'll be back in three weeks or whatever it was. Well, I came back. I mean, I could barely hold my stick. It was super weak. It was just was – and in the conversations beforehand, I said, okay, if I put this plate on, I can finish, you know, I can play in the playoffs, and then once we're done, you need to take it out. And they're like, oh, yeah, 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 no problem, no problem, no problem. And I'm like, are you sure? Yes. So I'm like, okay, put the plate in. They put the plate on, finish the season. We go to the third round. We lose to Colorado the year they won. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, or no, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, lose to them the year they won. And then. Was it a girl? Was that. It was Bork. The Bork, Bork won that. Okay, That's okay. the year Bork won. And then uh, I go, okay, take, take the plate out. They're like, oh, we can't do that. I'm like, what? So completely lied to me. So I trained that summer. Like now it's affecting my shoulder. You know, it's Issues, basically going yeah. down the whole chain. My elbow's getting sore. My shoulder's mm -hmm. getting sore. It's just not working properly. Play that year. At the end of that year in the playoffs, I blow my knee out, tear my ACL. So now I go into that summer and I'm like, okay, hey, my, my wrist is a mess. So I have ACL surgery, rehabbing that. I have major wrist reconstruction where because the plate was on there, it, my bone was growing into my hand. I don't know why it was stimulating growth in the bone. So they're like, all right, we need to go in there and shave that down. Sounds awesome. And I said, while you're in there, you know, take, take the plate out. Clearly that's an issue because my arm's aching. Yeah. Come out of surgery. For whatever reason, they, they block my hand in a cast like that. Well, it's my bottom hand. I need to do that yeah. to shoot. So I got my hand locked like that. I'm rehabbing my knee. I take my cast off and I can only move my hand to there. I couldn't rotate it. So you're now, like, hey, that, that, this isn't good. No. So now I'm like, I'm at prime of my career, just coming off heart Norris, coming off all these things. And you're what, late 20s, maybe? I'm 26. Yeah. So physically, you're, I'm in you're the prime of my prime. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting here thinking, holy shit, I can't move my arm. I can't do what I need to do. Like, I'm, I'm seriously thinking about retiring. You know, my knee, my, you know, it's, now it's affecting my shoulder, my elbow. I'm like, this is not good. Go, I do this whirlwind tour with my agent where we go meet with three specialists. One in Toronto says, oh, <laughs> I can take the plate off and you'll be good in three weeks. I'm like, eh, that might be a little aggressive. Mm -hmm. Then I go see another guy. He says it's going to take a year because where the screws are, they uh, said, oh, we need that to fill in. Too much. And I'm like, oh, that seems a little soft. And then we went and saw another guy in Baltimore. He's like, oh no, it'll you three months and you'll be good. I'm like, well, that sounds accurate. So, anyways, we go with him, but I have to go meet with the owner to get him to approve because now I got to get a second. And this is called this is elective surgery. Yeah, is what they've yeah. And doing. I'm like, I've seen all these specialists. I go, I, you know, and I go see him in training camp, and I go here, turn my hand. 
And he grabs my hand and he's like trying to, I go, I'm not holding it. Go ahead. He's like reefing on it. I go, it doesn't work. I have to go in and get it fixed. And they're now paying me $10 million. So mm -hmm. I'm like, if I don't get this fixed, I can't play. So finally they signed off on it. I go get this done. It's what's known as a Derrick procedure. They cut an inch out of your wrist and I don't have that bone anymore. Mm. Yeah, so do. they cut that whole inch out and there was like a divot in my, in my wrist. And that's now filled in with scar tissue. I was the first professional athlete to have that and come back and play. But it worked. It worked. My wrist felt, now I can move it. And just the discipline, the mindset, the, you know, failures, the ups, the downs, all that crap. Thinking you might have to retire, buying a junior team with a partner, thinking, all right, well, maybe I'll do that. And then realizing, okay, this worked. My knees back, my, my arms back. I'm like, okay, then I come back and play one more year. Then we get a lockout. <laughs> What year was this, 2001? This is, uh, I was hurt 2001, 2002. Yeah. Then in two, I missed 2002, 2003, and then I, uh, I played in 03, 04, right before the lockout. But in between that time, 2002, you won a gold medal? Uh, yes. That right when I came back is when uh, the Olympics were uh, in Salt Lake. You won it for Canada? Yeah. Sorry. Uh, Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> we beat the U.S. Sorry. <laughs> that how is the U.S.? How is the, uh, you living in the U.S.? You should have played for us. Could you? Can you play no, for us? No, no. Once you play for one country, you have to stick with it. Well, that sucks. Um, how how was that? It was great. It was great. You know, and it, and it seeing a team. You know, as Canadians, we don't rarely play together. You mm -hmm. know, the U.S. has their U.S.A. team. Sweden, they got their Swedish team. You know, all these players have played together for a long time. There's so many of us. It's it, diverging ages and. And whatnot, it's just a mishmash of, all right, you guys come together. And it's like, oh, well, you think, oh, well, you guys are all highly paid and you're pros, da, 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 that it's going to be like, chemistry is going to be like that. But it's not. It just, it takes time. And sometimes it comes together and sometimes it doesn't. That particular year, we lost our first game. We changed goalies. We changed, you know, and it, it just, when you see a team come together and you just see that starting to get it, starting to see chemistry, starting to get it, and, and you're, you're not playing to lose. You're playing to win. It, you could see us getting better. He gets more confident, getting better. And by the time the medal round started, we're playing the quarterfinals match. We're, we're like, okay, You're rolling. we're rolling. And then it was, all right, now we're on. The U.S. had kind of steamrolled through to the finals, and then we put a shellacking on them. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna skip over this part now um, let's fast track over this so interesting thing about mindset is uh, many times a, a big driver of motivation is playing for something uh bigger than yourself did you feel that when you're playing for the canadian team absolutely you know you you know we talk about legacy we talk about tradition we talk about all these things the national sport for canada is actually lacrosse believe it or not i did not know that um but hockey's obviously ingrained in the culture, and, and hockey is Canada. Yeah. So when you don the Canadian sweater, it's like, all right, you've, you've got all that tradition, you've got all that history on your back. And it's, you know, the, the, some people, the pressure, you know, like anything else, can get to them. And How other people kind of relish it. And, and Was that, did you relish it? I did, yeah. I just, you know, like getting booed. I guess I'm doing my job, you're booing me. You know, unless, it, unless you're on your home ice. Did you find yourself <laughs> playing harder than you ever had before? Uh, and I, I don't mean to make it a loaded question, not that you wouldn't play as hard as possible at all times, but 
was it putting on that Canadian hockey jersey specifically and playing for the gold medal and representing your country and where you're from in very much the most important sport? Did it, did you find an, an, another level you're able to hit? Yeah, I, I think you're able to take whatever role they're willing to, they want you to play, you know, because you get 20 all-stars. You're not all going to be on the power play. You're not mm-hmm. all going to be on the scoring lines or you're not having the same roles and responsibilities as you typically might on your NHL team. So it's, you know, players need to be willing to, they might be scorers, but they might have to be checkers and they might have to play the checking line or they might, you know. What was your role? If you had shut, to describe shut, it. I was shut down D. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't play the power play much. Uh, you know, you have other guys that can, that that's their role. I was more the shut down D and play, kill penalties and, you know, you don't play, you're not playing 30 minutes like you, you know, and that's mm-hmm. also the, the difference too is you know, you're used to playing 30 minutes and you're used to being immersed in the game, you're used to playing. I mean, now you're playing anywhere from 15 to 22 minutes a night. So it's kind so, of a, and, so you don't you, get in the flow as yeah, much. Yeah, you're know? not immersed, you know, every other shift you're going back yeah. versus, okay, well, oh, here's somebody else's matchup and you're used to being that matchup. You're like, okay. And it's, you know, just trying to stay in the rhythm and stay in the flow. And it takes, you know, sometimes it takes a few games to kind of acclimate your body and acclimate yourself to, to what that is. Now, you, you win a gold medal. You actually end up winning two, one other in 2010. But in between that, you were traded from the Blues to the Ducks. I was traded from the Blues to the Oilers. Oilers, excuse me. I'm yeah. sorry. And we're then, going with this. To the Ducks yeah. where you won a Stanley Cup. Correct. And how would you compare winning a gold medal to a Stanley Cup? Uh, they're both obviously incredible feelings. And, and I try to explain it like this to people. You know, we're basically putting an all-star team together for two weeks versus blood, sweat, and tears in yeah. nine to ten months with a, with a group of guys that, you know, some have come and gone because of trades and injuries and things of that nature. But the blood, sweat, and tears, the, the chemistry, the, the failures, and then the successes, and, your, you know, that bond on that team was we were, we were a tight group. So and would you say it was a more me- more meaningful as it related to your relationships with your teammates? And more meaningful in the sense that when I was growing up as a kid, I didn't think I was going to play in the Olympics because at the time it was amateurs only. So I was thinking, oh well, it was when we were playing road hockey. It was always Game Seven Stanley Cup Finals. Mm-hmm. It was never oh it was for a gold medal. So it just you know you get ingrained in your head. Oh I, I want to win that. I want to win that. I mean it. They're both incredible accomplishments, but just the the time frame and the dedication it takes to win a Stanley Cup, the luck, um, the discipline, the chemistry, the camaraderie, the the buy-in that it takes to win a championship, two-month grind, and then, oh, by the way, it's incredibly hard to get to the two-month grind, and then to come through that uh, and have a run like that, two, two months is a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're playing especially, especially could play 28 that, uh, games at that high of a level of the highest level of hockey every single game is the most the momentum game. shifts yeah. that can happen i mean you you are i'm telling you i've seen players dive in front of po- slap shots with their face just be like it, it's it's yeah. all or nothing you know you're like and if you ask i'll get them, i'll get it fixed and if they, yeah if, they, if you ask them why they did that they look at you like you're crazy like, yeah. what, what do you mean why, why everybody did? everybody here would do everybody that everybody would do it uh, you you touched on something that i i is very uh, i would say meaningful to me is um, when i talk to players of a sport specifically you know they yeah the, the 
the money's great. That's awesome. And fame, you know, we talked on there earlier. It's kind of a double-edged sword. Yeah. Like, yeah, there's good parts and there's a lot of bad parts. But uh, would you say perhaps the hardest part about eventually your career coming to an end, just like everyone's does, whether it's some people's, you know, it's just college or maybe one or two years in the pros, yours, 19 seasons. But is is the camaraderie you had with your teammates in the locker room, your, you know, your, your professional brothers, so to speak, was that – was that hard to give up when when that day came? I, th- I think when you talk to people, and I talk to a lot of you know former players and and guys that are being that are successful and guys that are struggling, they miss the rush and the adrenaline rush mm-hmm. of playing, and they also miss the camaraderie and the brotherhood of being in the locker room and and the sanctity of the locker room and you know the fun and the and the the, the discipline and the and the that we have a goal. There's a goal, a, a set goal, and each day, what, what, how are we getting there? How are we moving closer to the goal? Uh, and guys retire, and they've never thought about what's next. They've never thought about what do I do? What am I good at? You know, and what I tried to do early on in my career is, you know, you get pigeonholed into, oh, there's, there's Kyle, the football player. No, I'm not Kyle, the football player. I'm not Chris, the hockey player. I'm Chris. Mm-hmm. I do play hockey, but I also do X, Y, Z, and you try to counter these stereotypes or you get they used to always piss me off because I'm like okay you're you're John the lawyer yeah. oh you're you're Joe the accountant yeah I, I had so many times I actually say one of the biggest struggles for athletes is they hear that so much that is your Chris the hockey player that what they do in their head actually becomes who they are yeah they only identify as and that. so so think about that when what they do in their minds is actually who they are and what they do is taken away from them, just age, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, then all of a sudden, it's almost like their identity is taken away yeah. from them. And, and, that's, the, the and biggest, that's when it spirals. The biggest that, challenge I have from from my ex-teammates and, and even family members, and I'm sure all of the, shoot, thousands, hundreds of teammates at minimum you've had, but the biggest challenge I've seen is is they 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 almost feel like who they are is taken and they lose their identity. And that that leads to depression yep. and, and unfortunately – that can lead to, um, you see some, especially in the NFL, ex-NFL players, high-profile suicides and, th- and, yeah. and, and and drug abuse and all that. Um, but yeah, I guess my question was, how did you uh, how did you pivot? It appears very successfully when others really struggle from. You know, you were you 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 were touching on that why the Stanley Cup was in many ways so much more meaningful because of the. The journey you went on with your teammates. No pun intended. Yeah, th- that's right. There you go. See? It's a plug. <laughs> hey, it always comes back to the journey. Journey whiskey, baby. Um, but uh, the journey, some of which involved whiskey. Correct. Um, that yes. you went on with your teammates over nine months and sometimes over multiple years. And then uh, I'll, I'll talk on about your retirement more specifically in a second. But um, how did you do that? How did you just pivot? And, yeah, and, and I, stay productive. I, I was fortunate enough to have a bit of a runway, having getting hurt and still having years of my contract. So I was getting paid out to kind of figure that out. Uh, but but while I was playing, I was always interested in business. If I wasn't a hockey player, I was going to do something in business. So you were you, you know. always had. I, a, always, a, I was always interested, always interested okay. in just learning. I wasn't like, oh, here's my money and tell me how I'm doing. And as you know, wasn't paying attention. As you know, we haven't talked about this, but that that's also not normal for professional athletes. Most professional athletes are like. 
Here's my money. Ideally, yeah. ideally, hire I, a yeah a good one, a competent financial <laughs> advisor. But again, you and know, not give them power of attorney, and not give them power of attorney. Yeah, and, and I, I will say, at least on the NFL side, it, it seems like that's getting a lot better than maybe yeah. 20 years ago. There were some really yeah. interesting characters. To uh, say the yes, um, yes. There seems to be a little better vetting going on. Much better. You still see it once in a while. Yeah, but, you do. You do. But um, um, but so so business helped. Yeah, I think just just understanding and i got i have two great mentors in my life both of whom um you know relied on i got hurt in philly and and i asked them both i go can you guys fly in here and now told i can't play i'm done you're tired are you gonna have to retire and i'm like holy shit i had already had a pretty good layout of all right i've got investments i got this you know some interests maybe get into the management side maybe do the xyz both of them Flew into Philly to see me, and both of them said the same thing. Uh, the first person who I lived with my first year in Hartford um, said he had retired three separate times. Once he was 52, once he was 57, another time he was, and he's just like, I wasn't ready. And you know, and you, I was too young. What are you going to do? You're going to go play golf? Can you golf every day? Can you, like, what do you, where do you put your time? Yeah, I, I can't golf. You know, people, so, so. It, so then it became, okay. So he's like, both of them said, don't do anything for a year. Don't agree to do any charities. Don't agree to, because people are going to start coming mm -hmm. out of the woodwork now that you got all this free time. Don't do anything. Take notes, you know, sit down, talk to them, and take notes, you know, check the ones that are of interest. Um, you know, talk about, oh, I want to buy a business. Okay, don't buy anything because everything's going to look good because it's not what you're doing. Yeah. So it's going to look Everything good. looks interesting. Everything looks, oh, I wonder if I can make this work, and I wonder if this would be a good business to start, blah, blah. And, and really kind of sit down, take notes, look at it. In a year, come back to it or, or thereabouts and look at it and go, okay, what still interests me? Where do I want to invest my time? Do I want to be involved in this philanthropic organization? Do I want to build out this business? Do I want to invest in this? Do I want to... And really just kind of sit back, number one, work on your health, get better, and then be methodical and strategic in what you invest your time in so that you've now reflected back on your career. Like when the season's over, I wasn't sitting back. Oh, what a great year. What did I call? I'm like thinking about the next year already. Mm -hmm. I'm training for the next year. I'm not thinking about what I've been able to do in my career, what I've been, you know, on and on and on. I'm, I'm focused on forward. Yep. And, and when, yeah, go ahead. So it, it just, you didn't have time to reflect. So they're also like, just reflecting, you know, take the time to soak it all in what you've been able to accomplish. And all the while, kind of try to lay little seeds out there of what might be of interest and investment. I want to tie what we were just talking about with what we're now transitioning to, which is you know more professional business uh, post career. Um, but what we were talking about a second ago was te teammates and the relationships and the special bonds that are forged when you do something very difficult and it, and on top of that achieve, which in hockey is Stanley Cup win. And the meaning behind that, when you were pivoting, transitioning from being a professional hockey player to a professional businessman, let's call it, what weight did you put on or what advice would you have for an audience to put on? You know, certainly compensation is important, you know, what you can make or what you could create in terms of wealth, certainly what you do, you know, in hockey, it's yeah. the rush of playing hockey yeah. or um, for you having 
interest or the rush of whether it's being in the whiskey business or travel business or real estate, whatever it is. Um, but who you do it with that, that's yeah. where I'm getting at is, yeah. is certainly in, in a professional sport, like you call each other teammates, you don't call each other coworkers, right? Yeah. Because teammates is, is more, is a more special word. Um, but what, what thought or what, how, what importance did you place on who is going to be your teammate in your, in your business life? That's one of the biggest things is, is you're trying to map out what that looks like. And then you're also mapping out, is there anybody that you can do it with that has expertise that you don't have, that's going to be a, a valuable partner in whatever you're building out? Um, are you the yin and the yang? Are you able to kind of play off one another, that type of stuff? Um, or are you want to work for somebody? You know, do, do you want to be your own boss? And I started working for a team. I worked for the league, and then I worked for a team. And I think it was 30-plus years of being told what to do, where to go by somebody. And I'm like, I don't like working for the man no more. I want to be my own boss. You know, and it's a matter of if you manage your money well. I made a lot of money playing. I'm like, I don't have to work. But I like to work. I like yeah. to stay active. I want to do something productive. I want to, you know, build out a business. And and so you know, you go down the management path, and I'm just like, it's just not for me. I'm. I'm we were talking about that Dana White video. It's yeah. like, oh, you think you want to work for yeah. yourself? You think you want to yeah. be an entrepreneur? Like, yeah. Bullshit. Yeah. Like, you want to put all the heart, you know, the the grinding days it's, in. It's and, a and, war. And I think knowing yourself, some people are meant to work for somebody. And some people are willing to, yeah. that have the wherewithal and the, the ability to identify how much effort and discipline and will it's going to take to build out a business. Are you willing to sacrifice the time? Are you willing to make the time to do it? All right. Before we t talk about business, I'm going to put a bow on your playing career. Finish the NHL. I'm going to read off some stats. 157 goals, 541 assists for 698 points, especially as a defenseman. That's a, that's a lot, right? But uh, what I love is one of the highlights, 1,590 penalty minutes. I was in the sin bin a few times. <laughs> is that what they call <laughs> sin bin? That's awesome. That's awesome. So uh, it, over 1,167 games, so you actually had more minutes than games. So in any given day, you were going to be in what you call the sin bin. And that's on, on top of 173 playoff games. So 26 goals, 95 assists, 121. Like an incredible career. Congratulations Thank on you. that. Um, you retired and, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It, I mean, you had played so long, but, but it was, you had a career ending eye injury. You had some post concussion syndromes, you know, you had just wear and tear your wrist, yeah. your knee, yeah. your shoulder. Was I it, had, was it just time up? Uh, yeah. And up until that point, I had 13 surgeries when I retired. I've had three since three on the same knee, got a knee replacement a couple years ago. Mm. Just, Yeah. You know, I, could I have played a couple more years? Yeah. But were you re would you say you were... I accomplished, so yeah. it's funny. I got hurt, and Sidney Crosby was hurt at the same time. And he's, uh, he's like 12 years younger than mm -hmm. me, I think, or ish. I think he might have been... I was 37, turning 38. No, what was I? Yeah, I was 37, turning 38, and he was like 24-ish. Yeah, he had, he had and he had a really yeah. bad concussion, yeah. and he didn't play the whole year. If I was in his shoes, you know, as as I'm talking to the media, as I'm getting asked all these questions all the time, I'd played 19 years. I'd won a cup. I'd won gold medal. I'd won MVP. I'd won you know, yeah, won yeah. everything that you can win. And checked every box. I've checked all the box. I go. I don't need to prove anything. I don't need to. I've done it all. Yeah. Him, on the other hand, 
you know, he's won a cup, but, you know, he's still got the prime of his career in front of him. That, I would be pissed. That, that would be hard to take if that was the end of his career. And so, you know, I think you, you, every situation is different, as you know, case-by-case case basis. Like what, you know, 24 versus 38 is a big difference. And, and, you know, now I look to see kind of where he's come since then and two more cups and, you know, on and on and on. So um, I think it depends on where you are in your career arc, how you prepared. You know, I know there's lots of guys I know that, you know, like me, okay, your career's done. And now they're sitting there going, oh, shit, what now? Well, I was going to ask, like, any thought into what they would do. What was that first morning like? Uh, let's call it after your formal official retirement announce or press conference, whatever, whatever, however you delivered that message. What was it? You woke up, you're like, okay, so what do I do now? Or no, you know what? I think it was just more, okay, I need to get healthy. You know? So I spent the whole, I spent a year just retraining my eye, retraining everything, kind of getting back healthy, working on my concussions, doing all that kind of stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was your job. That That was was my job was getting healthy. So for the first year, my job was getting healthy. I just spent that whole year getting healthy. I didn't. In addition to that, again, maybe you're home more, right? Yeah, I was was just staying at home, home, dad. Everything I did was staying, you know, I'm driving the kids to school. I'm doing, you know, the stuff that I couldn't do when I was playing. My dad retired when I was 15 or 16. And, you know, all of a sudden he's home every day. Yeah. It was pretty cool. Yeah. But uh, it was different. Like, I remember it very. There's more discipline here now. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was cool. My mom probably probably took some adjustments from my mom. Like, what? Like, why, why are you here? Like, well, you when you look at something. the statistics yeah. of, of athletes, and, and athletes, you could say, Lord, you can say whatever profession. Mm-hmm. When they retire and they're home all the time. It's not good. It's usually not good. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of divorce that happens from that because the spouse typically gets used to kind of being on their own schedule. They have their own schedule. Well, you know, there's a, there's a business and there's a business of real estate. There's a business of being a professional hockey player. There's a business of running a whiskey company. And then it, there's the business of running a house. Yeah. And, and, and it's not easy. It's not easy. <laughs> you know, your wife uh, stay at home. Yeah. Okay. My wife stayed at home. And, and so it, it's a business. It, yeah. It's not easy. It's very challenging uh, on many levels, but, uh, It'd be like someone coming in, you know, after a certain amount of time, all of a sudden you have a partner who's going to come in and, and 50-50 tell you to run your business. You yeah. go, oh, hold on, hold on, yeah. hold on. This was working really yeah. well. We were running yeah. like a top earlier. Yeah. <laughs> don't <laughs> screw up my mojo. Do you think that might have, that, that maybe your wife also helped, uh, hey, why don't you go figure out after you 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 fixed your body, why don't you go figure out something Yeah, no, to do? it was more, I was trying to see if I wanted to, to go down the, you know, the management path and wanted to f- try to figure out. Yeah, because you did, what, six, be... seven years of... I did, you know, I You did. were involved in I hockey. worked a little bit in Philly when I was there, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of, you know, special assignment scouting. Then I got asked to go work at the league, worked there for three years in a player uh, Department of Player Safety, and then I went and worked for Florida for three years, a special advisor to Dale Town, the GM, and just kind of immersed myself in learning, learning, you know, I was working at the league office. I got to be a part of two expansion teams, Vegas and Seattle. You enjoyed, you enjoyed the, whole, the time. Yeah, you're just seeing the business side of the mm-hmm. game, the financial side of, of the game. You're seeing the numbers, you're seeing the revenues, you're seeing, you know, them talking about how can we grow the game without screwing up the traditions of the game and what people love about our game. Um, so it, it's just, you know, there's obviously a lot more when you're a player, you're not paying attention to that crap. Mm-hmm. And you don't care about that crap. You're like, no, I want to make, I want to get paid my money <laughs> for what I do. 
and wherever you fall in that pecking, everybody knows their pecking order. Everybody knows who their comps are. The teams know too. And, you know, we may argue about the top comps, but there's that middle comps that they're all the same. So it's, it's a matter of that. But then when you see the financial side of it and see all the layers that go into it and, you know, the haves and the have-nots and, yeah, there's a salary cap, but there isn't a salary cap on how yeah. you pay it. You know, front-loading contracts. Financial, and, and financial engineering. Yeah, I, think they call I mean, it. It is, there's, you show me a new CBA, I'll show you the different ways we can manipulate it. How would I say this? You, you, you did your six, seven years kind of in and around the league, yep. but you at some point decided that's not what I want to do. Yeah, I just, it, it was a great learning experience. And, and I think for me, it was just, as I said earlier, I've just been working for the man, been told where to go, what to do, how to do it. And you're ready to. And I'm just, just like, you know what? If I don't do anything, I just don't want to be told what to do. I got you. I'm going to do something. And at the time, my wife was building out the boutique travel business. And I was helping her kind of with the business plan and helping her with networking so and talking to people. So the boutique travel was very much her idea. It was her baby. Got she it. Want, you okay. know, That was something she wanted to do. And our kid, you know, our oldest was driving at that time. So you could see the... The writing on the wall that the kids were going to be mobile on their own. They're going to have, we we're going to have more free time. They were becoming more self reliant. Yeah, and so she's like, I'm going to do this now. I'm like, great, I'll help support. I was still working in Florida. Then I went to a trade show with her. I'm like, man, this is great. Everybody's happy, collegial. I'm sitting there in Florida. You know, the team loses. I'm like, why do I got to be pissed off? I'm not playing. It's not my fault they didn't play good today. Why do I got to be mad? You know, so it's just like. I don't want to walk around pissed off when yeah. I didn't even have anything to do with it. Yeah. You know, yeah, do you have something to do like in the macro no, but, environment but not, but not, of putting yeah, players together? The, sure. Not but, the way you do as a player. But, you know, I, you know, as a player, you live and die by every shift, every game, every, and it just eats and gnaws at you. And I was maniacal in that sense where I just held myself to a certain standard and it pissed me off when I couldn't meet that standard each and every game. And as a, when you're in management, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to come down and be all mad. I mean, yeah, guys are going to make mistakes. I made mistakes as a player. But the coach's job is to coach them up, yeah. get them better, develop them. You know, and as a management, your job is to bring in the players and get them to, I, I to ask, do their job. I ask a lot of athletes this question. I get, I get a range of answers, so we'll, we'll see with you. Is uh, You know, no one's ever told me, that they're not competitive. Everyone's like, oh, I'm the most competitive person. I'm, I'm the most competitive person. I hate losing. But in what you're relating to, it's kind of when you're, when you're, whether you're on the GM side, you're in management, all the way to the furthest removed, but emotionally invested a fan. Yeah. Like you can't directly affect the outcome of the game in no. the season. Now, again, as a scout, you could pick the, you could say, Hey, we got to, okay, but not the way you but can. But then they still have to develop and they still yeah, got to yeah, train. They yeah. still have and, to and give again, a shit. I, 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 I hate better. that. We never use the word victim, but you're kind of like, you're basically, uh, you're at the whim of somebody. You're else. at the whim. I was going to say the whim of somebody else. Uh, but when you're a player and or a coach, you have the effect. And so where I'm going with this is as much as everyone hates losing, uh, myself included, were there ever games or series or seasons or just moments as a player where you lost? And, and again, you can hate losing, but you gave you, and you knew you gave everything you had to it, to that game. And you played the absolute best. It doesn't mean you played perfect. And while you hate losing and you're skating off the ice, pissed off, 
Was there ever a moment where you, I don't want to say satisfaction, but you're like, hey, I did everything I could. Yeah, there's moments like that, but you're not, um, you're not satisfied. Yeah. You're, you're like, we, did, we didn't accomplish what we set out to do. And you're, you know, I was fortunate enough when I, when I was in Edmonton, we went to stand in the cup finals, we lost in game seven. I get traded in Anaheim, we go, we go and we win the Stanley Cup. Two offense, and on that team we had a couple 21-year-olds, Corey Perry and Ryan Getzlaff, who our assistant coach told us, he's like, yeah, I got, I got to the Stanley Cup Finals as a rookie my rookie year and never went back. Those guys, Corey Perry went elsewhere to, to go, gets, never went back, mm. never got to the Finals again. It's just, you know, when, when you have that opportunity, you, you better – you better jump on it because you never. I mean, a lot of it is luck, a lot of it is health, a lot of it is when are so guys weird. having career yeah. years? It's just so much. What team gets hot? Is the goalie my, uh, hot? My, Do you have depth? Do you have, I mean, it just my cousin. So much goes. My into cousin it. Jake Matthews is a left tackle for the Falcons, and um, they were in the Super Bowl five, six years ago against the Patriots here, twenty-eight to three in the third quarter, and they lost. It was a very, very tough, and hopefully, he's not listening to this, but. After the game, and you know, I waited a couple of days, and hey, called him up. What's up, Cuz? Like, oh, yeah. sorry. He's like, no, you know what? Hey, it sucks, but like, we're we'll be back. You know, he's like, we're young, we'll be back. And you, you don't want to tell him, <laughs> dude. You almost got, you almost got to catch lightning in a bottle when you're not you the perennial favorite you every year. You got to catch lightning in a bottle. You do. It's terrible. My uncle Bruce played 19 years. He made the Super Bowl once. The Titans versus uh, Rams. They yeah. lost on the one yeah. yard line. Yeah. You were in St. Louis yeah. probably around that yeah. time. So, the, you yeah, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> I know they did. <laughs> my, my dad went to three AFC championships against Elway all three times, lost on the drive and the fumble. Yeah. Never went back, never got to the Super Bowl. Yeah. Uh, so when my brother Clay got there and uh, with the Packers and they beat the Steelers and they won. Broke the string. Broke, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, we had a bad string. We we have a good college. We have a lot of championship college, but the NFL. It was it was it was wild. It was surreal because like you realize, and you more so than yeah. I ever could. You had played a long time. You had lost in Game Seven. So when you got back there with Anaheim, and I was thirty-one years old. I'd been in the league thirteen years. Yeah, that's a long. Finally, time. my twelfth year, I finally got to the to the finals. Yeah, and then went in my thirteenth year. We, you go, which is incredible. Just like, Holy shit! Now I, I actually, and then you went back again. You were with the Flyers. Yep. You played the Blackhawks. Yep. That went to Game 7. That went to Game 6. It's game 6. Uh, overtime in Game 6. Overtime, that's right. Yeah. Um, they win. They win, yeah. There's that a story awesome. out there that you might have taken the puck. I didn't take that puck. I was actually on the bench when they <laughs> scored, so I couldn't get out there fast enough to get it. But in Games games 1 and Game 2 in Chicago, you know, they do all these media pieces, right? And uh -huh. they're showing, oh, they, they, they've got this board in their locker room they put all the game-winning pucks up to track, you know, oh, we, we need two more wins. We need... Da, da, da. So I'm like, well, I just happened to be on the ice at the end of the game. You know, there's two seconds left, and the, somehow I get the puck. I'm like, well, I'm not giving it to him. Just reach down, pick it up. It's nobody's puck. Nobody owns the puck. Yeah. It's an NHL puck. I just took it, put them, you know, just kept it. They got all mad and whatever. Took it. Wasn't thinking anything of it. We are just sitting there. I'm like, eh, pff, just threw it in the garbage. And then... Uh, Game two, rolls around again. We lose a heartbreaker 2-1. I'm like, oh, fuck. again, just happened to be out there. <laughs> just happened to you. I got the puck. I'm like, well, oh, I'm keeping this one too. They take it. They lose their marbles. You know, they're trying to come on the bench and all this stuff. And I'm like, you don't own this puck. 
Nobody owns this puck. The NHL owns this puck, which means I can take it if I want. So I take it. Now when I kept, I actually have it in my uh, home office. Oh, you do. Just sitting in a plastic bag. And <laughs> Would it, you say uh, you're a sore? It drove them bananas. So we're down 2 nothing. Yeah. Go back to Philly. Nobody's asking us about being down 2 nothing. Nobody's asking They're us. asking about the They're puck. They're asking about the stupid puck. And I'm like, oh, so now we're able. I'm like, all we got to do, and I'm in the locker room. I'm like, guys, we just got to win our home games. They've won their games. They're mm-hmm. supposed to. We win our home games. We went back. We won our two home games. And so it's just, you know, you lose another heartbreaker in game five, and then obviously overtime in game six. And we had some great chances to finish the game and didn't to get to game seven. But So would you say you're a sore loser? Always a sore loser. That's what I tell people. I say that. First off, we lost the Carolina seven games. Never should have lost to him. We were winning game one handily. And then in game two, we changed our system completely. It was stupid. Our goalie got hurt in game one. Our goalie doesn't get hurt. They don't win. We win game one, and then it's then we're golden. Would you say the losses uh, stick out so much more than the wins? Always. I, you beat yourself up over the losses in anything. Yeah. I don't get it. Business, family, sports. Mm-hmm. Hate, you know, I think people who count <laughs> realistically hate losing more than they like winning. No, I, 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 I you count your lot. If you're competitive, you count your losses more than you count your wins. I just had this conversation three days ago. I was explaining, uh, someone's like, Man, you're really you take losses hard. I said, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm the sorest loser. Like, I take it personally. Um, I, I am able to bring myself to shake someone's hand. But I really don't mean it. Yeah. I'm not happy for him. Yeah. I'm a very, very That should have been me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and and if I if if it if it shouldn't have been me because I didn't prepare the way, I, I'm I'm so mad at myself that yeah. again I, I again I could find a way to be gracious. But I said, um, outside of like a, a championship, a meaningful championship over a long season, I I when we were at SC, we won a national championship my senior year. It, it was it was there was joy there. Yeah. Like I had, and again, not yeah. to the level you have, but I assume the Stanley Cup was oh, that. But right. I said, I said, for right or for wrong, this is just the way God made me. I, I said, winning's more of a relief. Yeah. I said, but losing yeah. is so uh, sickening. It's so it's such a disgusting feeling that, you know, I work so hard and I, I go so hard or play so hard yeah. that it's really just to avoid losing more so than winning, which is again, it's a relief outside of a championship. Yeah. But it, uh, but that also goes into the the complex or the ideology of playing not to lose. Yeah. And there's a fine line of yeah. competing and wanting to win and then competing not to lose. And Agreed. and how that mindset, in 1998 when I was my first year in the Olympics in Nagano, we were the favorites and Gretzky's there and Sackick's there and, you know, we got this, this team and we're the odds-on favorite. And when we look back at, at the tournament and at the games, you could see... You know, we were overpowering some teams, but then as we got along, we weren't that we weren't getting better. We were playing not to lose. Yeah, because we were, we're doing just favorite. enough. You know, not throwing ourselves out there, mm-hmm. not playing just enough not to lose. Because just the pressure of you got to win. Got anything less than a gold medal was a, was a complete an utter loss. So we were we lose in a shootout in the semifinals to who? and play to Czech Republic. And we then play Finland in the bronze medal game. 
You guys didn't no interest. Yeah, like, you if you could go back, you're like, it'd be cool. I get two goals. It'd be cool to have bronze too. Like, but you're not even focused. No. Like, so disinterested, so like in shock that you lost this game that you feel like got stolen from you. But you, did you earn it? Like, did you really do everything in your power and do everything necessary to to compete and win at that highest level? And so. Again, I mean this as a compliment. Sore loser. I love the story of taking the puck and just, you know. Just pissing him off. Just pissing him off. Yeah. Oh, you guys yeah. won? Oh, good. I got your puck. Yeah. And you still do. <laughs> you still and do. And I still do. I use it to paperweight. So so let's talk about um, a pursuit of winning now in current. Talk to me about journey. Talk to me about whiskey. How would you, you choose this business? What have, what have been some of the big wins and, and what are the, some of the challenges that you, you, you have to overcome every day? Yeah, it's, uh, this was two years in the making. My brother and I had, had talked about trying to do something together for a long time and uh, you know, just trying to figure it out, you know, what, what made sense, what, what would be fun, what would be cool uh, for us you know, as longtime whiskey drinkers and fans of Canadian whiskey. You know, it's our home country. Uh, as my brother likes to say, we've put a lot of R and D into, uh, the product. <laughs> you gotta so, be an expert. That's right. We are, uh, whiskey drinking experts, but, uh, anyways, Niagara Falls craft distillers went to uh, a friend of my brother's and like, Hey, we're looking for a partner in this venture. You know, we'd like to, to do something with the uh, Canadian hockey players. We think it's a good fit. Uh, he, he's like, Oh my God, I think I have the, the right brothers for you. And they brought it to us, thought about it for a while. Like, makes sense. It's something we can get behind. Um, you know, one of the things, as I mentioned earlier, when I'm in, I'm all in. I don't think they understood what that meant. They do um, now. They, oh, they do now. Uh, you know, we're involved in, you know, the flavor is, that's our flavor. So, you know, you have what you like, and then we're like, here's what we would fix about it. You know, it's got, it's got a little spice to it. It's got a little sweet and savory finish to it. It's got uh, a little heat, but it's got none of that burn that mm -hmm. most people hate going down. It's incredibly smooth. Um, Do you recommend neat or on the rocks? Uh, either or. Either or. It depends. It's, it all depends on how you like to drink it. I usually drink it with a big rock. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've got a couple cocktails out now. If you're like an afternoon refreshing drink, that with the club soda and a nice orange wedge. Now, you did say earlier, but we, we, I don't think we were recording, Zach. Not that you should be drinking at 9 a.m. ever, no. but the best time to taste. Yes, if you're looking uh, to, to taste and kind of really get a sense of the real flavor profile when your palate is at its peak and, and everything is optimized and ready to run, 9 a.m. Mm. is what I was told is when your palate is at its best. Well, I And always put, uh, if you, you, know, you get a little taste glass, put one to two drops of water in. And that, yeah, opens it up. Okay, I've never done that. And uh, and and somebody and once said, "Explode." It, I feel like I've heard. If not, I'm gonna say this for the first time, and I'll copyright it, is at five o'clock somewhere. So correct, correct. Yeah, I know Jimmy Buffett, man. So uh, we partnered with them. We we uh, you know we did the juice. My brother and I would FaceTime. They'd send us a product. My brother and I would FaceTime. We'd try it and we'd talk about you know make notes, talk about it. Is your brother in St. Louis too? He's or? in uh, Newport Beach. So. He's out in Cali. So he, he's trying it. He's like, oh, uh, I like this. Must be nice. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, good man. Must be nice, brother. He's sitting out on his patio oh, looking yeah. at the water. In February. Sip. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so we do the first one. 
you know, I, I, I want to fix this, fix this, fix this, uh, you know, not knowing the exact whiskey lingo of how to do it. We just tell them, here, can you do this? Yeah, we can do that. Okay. Not knowing how they're going to do it. And then uh, get the second iteration. We're like, mm, yeah, better, but okay, got to get rid of more of the burn. Got to do this, this, and this. We both get the third iteration, which is this exact bottle right here. And we both took a sip and we're kind of staring at each other on FaceTime. We're like, boom, boom. That's it. This is it. Well, tell your brother to enjoy that nice yes. sip, staring at that beach. Yes. But and the, on the back, when you this, have that, when this you, is going to bring it full circle. Yeah. Our tagline, celebrate the victories, be proud of your scars, enjoy the journey. And take the puck. And take the puck. Take and if you look, puck. yes. And if you look at the, the logo. It is a puck. That's the puck. Uh, that's the Chicago Blackhawks puck. Yes, it's part of it. But yeah. uh, I was going to say, tell them to enjoy that sunset. But. Hopefully a big liquidity event. Have tell them also enjoy paying those Cali taxes. Yes, baby. yes. Well, we're we're in our, our infancy first. We're in Missouri, uh, Southern Illinois. Launched in Ontario a week and a half ago, uh, which was great. Get on our home soil. Mm-hmm. Soon to be in Alberta and BC and Manitoba, and we're in New York. Soon to be in uh, New York City, uh, and working on uh, distribution in Texas and. Uh, Florida. I'm not going to talk about how much, but you did very well being an NHL hockey player. And um, so financially, professionally, you've achieved more success than probably most people could dream of. Why don't you just chill? What am I going to do, golf all day? <laughs> I mean, it's it, ultimately just I like I like having a purpose. I like doing something. I like, you know, whether it's looking at investments, whether it's, you know, working at our travel company, whether it's building out this whiskey business. Would you say idle hands are the devil's workshop? Uh, I would say if you don't have a purpose and if you don't have structure, um, somebody tends to sit right on your oh, shoulder yeah. here. Mm-hmm. and uh, The devil talks to yes, you. Yes, yes. Uh, what, what advice would you have for people that may just not have the natural proclivity that you've talked about today where you you since a young age you know respectfully very disciplined right again i I said earlier the 10 year old going to the library to study hockey practice you know formations that's not normal but most people if i may i'm generalizing don't necessarily have that yeah and so what advice would you have or what have you seen over the years for people who uh, learned or developed discipline and routines and structures which you've very clearly communicated the value to of today like how how if so, for our listeners who are like, I'd love to have it, but I struggle yeah. with that. What advice would you have? Uh, find mentors. There's, you know, find people who want to help. People that are successful. People that are organizations that can help steer in directions. Um, when you're align an ath- yourself with good people. When you're an athlete, you have not people coming at you nonstop. Now a lot of them scrupulous characters, but correct. You have the luxury. I, I'm I'm a representative of the audience right now, and they're going to say, "Well, Chris, that's easy because when you're a, f- a famous hockey player, you have people, really successful people, who want to mentor you." But what about me? I'm just an average Joe. How do I find a mentor? My brother is not exactly a name guy, name brand guy. Um, it, it's a throwing yourself out there. I mean. If you're not at the top, and oh, by the way, even if you're at the top, you've had failure. You've had uh, moments where you weren't overly confident, and you then 
practice and you 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 train and you try to perfect or hone your craft, whatever that is, it it's also being prepared. I don't know how to meet someone. Prepare. Read a book on it. Watch a YouTube video. All yeah. All of the information is out there on how to get better. It's what do you want to do? And if you don't know what you do, what do you not want to do? Then you can keep, I tell my kids, I'm like, what do you not want to do? What do you not like? Cross those off. Put Create a list of things that you want to learn more about, something you might want to be interested in doing, and keep a list of, I don't like that. I don't want to do that. And shh, you don't have to waste your time on any of these yeah. things because you're not interested. Yeah, it's hard to be successful with something you're not interested no, in. No, you have to be passionate uh, about it and willing to invest uh, your time and I'll effort. tell you, just to piggyback on your answer, but also kind of answer my own question, do not do not expect with great results if you're looking for a mentor and there's someone in this space that you want to be in or someone who's achieved a high success. Please don't rely on LinkedIn messages or just emails or phone calls. All great. I'll give you a little, as the young people say, a little hack here. Yes. Write a handwritten letter. I, I'll, I'll be shocked. Like, no one ever throws out a handwritten letter without reading it. And so if there's someone in the industry that you want to get in or you're in and you're looking for mentorship, I'm not saying it's a hundred percent guarantee to succeed, but if you want to increase the probabilities that someone actually takes the time to at least even just get on the phone with you, write them a handwritten letter in blue ink. Their assistant's going to look at it first and guess what? They're going to read it and go, you need to read this. Agreed. And I even the most uh, intimate of assistant to boss relationships or something about a handwritten letter where even if they read it, they're just like, I don't think I can throw this out without handing it to He them. needs to at least see it. Yes. He or she. Yeah, he or she. And um, if they are in a position where you want them to mentor, it's probably because they achieved success. And I think that person will appreciate the extra effort. There was, in, this, yeah. this happened to me a week ago. I get lots of emails and phone calls, and I'd love to get back to everyone. But someone wrote me a handwritten letter. I was like, well, I got to get back to this guy. Yeah. I don't know. It'd be pretty rude if I yeah. didn't. So um, what... Uh, are there any, in terms of starting this business, you know, were there any concerns or fears that it, of failure that it might not work out? I think once we decided to go down the path of doing it, you can't start something and think you're going to fail. Yeah, you're already failed because you think you're going to fail. Um, no, it was a matter of us executing on the branding, the marketing the juice, the packaging. The, it was just going through the sequence of events of what we needed to do to prepare for market and then get with the distribution and figure out distributors, figure out how we're going to, how we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. Has it gone smoothly? No. <laughs> Have there business been moments not where smooth? what are you talking success about? <laughs> is not a direct line. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Someone so lied to me. It, uh, you know, and you learn along the way. I mean, I wasn't, in the liquor business before. I knew a lot of people in the liquor business. I knew a lot about it per se, not the nuances and the intricacies of the business. And, and it's, a, it's, it's pretty fascinating and, and interesting to me now that I'm in it to kind of learn more and meet people and talk to how other people got started, kind of what they went through, how they built to where they are. Um, you know, I, I just you know, find it interesting, just like talking to an athlete about kind of their story and their mm -hmm. grind Talking to a business owner about how they got to where they went. I don't think people realize, like Tito, Tito's Vodka, was literally almost bankrupt before they finally got a big order that 
started to get them over. Like, and now it's massive. Now, yeah, yeah. Again, I, but, I'm not. But a, people again. Tito's to, and to, Soto, baby. To Michael Jordan, <laughs> you know, getting cut and you know, yeah. middle school, high school, whatever, from the high school basketball team to me getting cut, whatever. Like, there is going to be. It's not a straight line. There is going to be failure. There is going to be heartache. There's going to be disappointment. There's going to be loss. Adversity. Adversity. How are you going to ex- accept the challenge? It's not how are you going to quit. It's how are you going to accept the challenge. How are you going to overcome that adversity? And what are you willing to put into well, it to be successful? Part of the reason I asked the question about you know fear of failure is it's it's in conversations I've had with people, a lot of them will be, I'm thinking about starting a business or I've thought about it, and I'll be like, well, why don't you? And they're like, well, you know, what if it doesn't work out? So it's it's this some it's this they've already lost. It's already this fear over. of failure. And so what what advice would you have for someone who um, Actually, I have a great answer for you. Yeah. And I don't even know your question, but I know it. One of the things that I think helped me the most in this company is the travel business. Is You're trying to grow the business. I'm, I mean, during the pandemic, I must have talked to 10,000 people. I mean, you don't know me that well. I'm very introverted. I'm not outgoing. I'm not talkative. But in that line of work, you got to talk to people. Get over it. You've Get over your fears and talk to people and be vulnerable and talk to them about your business. Talk to them about how you can help them. Talk to them about whatever. And I think that has helped prepare me for this business in having the ability to talk about the story, talk about, you know, the journey. It's called the journey, not because the journey, it's the journey of life. We all have shitty days. Have a glass of whiskey and tell your friends about it. We also have good days. We all have great days. Have a glass glass of whiskey whiskey. and tell your friends about it. Yeah. Tell your parents, tell your spouse, tell whoever. And and so it's really just we want to integrate ourselves into everybody's own unique journey and 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 how they go about living their lives. And um, you know, hence the tagline, celebrate the victories. We all want to do that. Be proud of your scars. We all get kicked in the face and have failure. And just enjoy yourself and just enjoy the journey of life. And I think too often we get in our own heads. You know, you, you have a bad day, you have a down day, you know, and things aren't going your way. You get a little down, a little depressed. Not everybody is 365 right up in the top, peaking at optimal levels. I mean, it's just... Nobody is. It's just not how this world works. It's, it's not keep, how life is. And got to keep battling. Yeah, it's the ebb and flow of life, and hence... The journey. The journey. And since naming it the journey, it's funny now. Every time I talk to people, just casual conversation or you know, podcasts or just talking to various people, how often well, the journey, not this journey, like just the journey of yeah, life journey and all oh, your journey. No, it's, it's a phenomenal. How did you do the uh, you know, blah blah? It just it's a phenomenal branding connotation because there's there's symbolism. Yeah, like tremendous symbolism. And, uh, you know, in terms of overcoming fear, one of the, I did want to in, uh, intertwine this story is I would say, uh, not only it, it appears you also, um, from a young age, didn't let fear be an obstacle for you, but I, it also helps when, uh, at one point in your career, you took a puck to the heart, your heart stops uh, legally. Did you die? That's actually, I, I don't, I don't know if I legally died. Um, yeah, I got hit in a playoff game in Detroit in 1998. I, you know, I was, I got hit right as my heart was about to beat. Commotio Cordis, as we now know with the DeMar Hamlin incident. I was going to say the Buffalo Bills play just, same thing. There's a sequence of events that needs to happen in a sequential order in a specific timing. And then when you get hit, 
your your heart skips a beat, which is called commotio cordis. A lot. This happens to a lot of little league baseball players. They're coming in at third base. They get hit with a line drive, or you get a comebacker at the pitcher, and it hits them. Uh, it's very prom, uh, prominent in little league baseball. Hmm. It doesn't get talked about a lot, but it, it's it's fairly happens quite regularly. I think I just heard it. And a lot of those. Kids I think die. I just heard thirty thousand moms cancel their little league baseball. Yeah. A lot. A lot of those kids die because you know they're not fully formed. They're you know yeah. they're kids. They got a smaller heart, smaller wall, all that stuff. Um, <laughs> I was the first athlete to have this happen to them on TV. <laughs> it, there was no social media then, you know, 1998. Probably better there wasn't. Yeah. And, you know, so there wasn't really a whole lot of talk about it. Mm-hmm. It may have kind of been a blurb in the USA Today and, you know, after after our, our game notes, oh, yeah, by the way, Chris got hit in the heart. So I get hit in Detroit. It stings. And I'm like, uh, in my head, you know, I cover the puck, get a whistle. And in my head, I'm like, okay, you're in Detroit. Don't let these fans see you lay on the ice. So get up. We're right by the bench. I go, get to the bench. I black out. I don't remember, but I stood up, took like you just a stride and just crumpled the ground. I wake up. I'm in the middle of the ice now. I'm looking up at the banners and the retired jerseys and stuff. And I'm like, where am I? And I look over and our bench is right there and guys are crying. And I'm like, what the, what's going on? And they had cut all my stuff open, and they were getting ready to do mouth-to-mouth. And, and so as I talked to our trainer about it, I said, well, what exactly happened? At that time frame, they did not have defibrillator in the arena. And in the ambulance, it was just a bus. It wasn't, they didn't have any electronics and all the stuff that you would see now. It was just a bus to get you to mm-hmm. the hospital. So they were kind of freaking out. My lips were turning blue. I hadn't, I wasn't breathing for like 20, 25 seconds. And then all of a sudden they were about to give me mouth to mouth. Yeah. That was enough. All to, of a sudden that was took, enough to, yeah. I was like, I oh, know the thought of, the thought of, uh, the thought of your trainer <laughs> yeah. giving you a kiss was, like, oh. was enough to shock you back uh, to yeah, life. I, right, came, I came back see. to life and it was just like, <laughs> holy shit. Okay. I'm back. And then, you know, went to the hospital and you know, heart monitor tracking me doing all that kind of stuff. And then I flew back to St. Louis the next morning, went to the heart specialist, wore a monitor for 24 hours. And you were back in there 48 walking, hours. Later. Walking on the treadmill. I'm in my dress shoes, jogging on the treadmill, like just trying to get my heart rate up, trying to you know do all that kind of stuff. Wear this heart monitor all day, go back at lunch the next day, the day of the game, to get the data looked at and then to talk to her about, you know, can I play? Can I not play? What, what happened? What, did, what, just, what, did, what is this whole scenario going on? Can it happen again? Are there any long-term side effects, short-term side effects, all the things that you might ask? And she basically was like, you know what? This happens. It doesn't happen very often. But, I mean, can this happen again? Yes. They then put a pad around you know, mm-hmm. my heart area, which is now uh, on every pair of hockey pads. There's a little heart guard, it's called. Um, and she basically said, I mean, can it happen? Yes. Will it happen again? Doubtful. This is like a one in a million, yeah. one in 10 million type occurrence. Yeah. And it hasn't, it hadn't happened since DeMar Hamlin, yeah. which was 24, 24 years. Yeah, it was very weird. I remember seeing that. 25, it was 25 years, which is crazy. So my point is when you literally, you know, overcome dying and the fear of death, it's not funny, but it's like, you know, it's a, uh, the fear of failure of starting a business or doing anything, whether it's for yourself, myself, or any listener, it's like, don't let that get in the way. And and also, get over yourself. 
Yeah. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Rejection, you know, whatever. It's just another opportunity. You know, and I think, you know, we all get set in our own ways and we, you know, don't necessarily want to challenge in, in other avenues that maybe we're not as good at. And I would argue that since I retired, I kind of work more on my negatives and the things that I'm not great at. And, you know, whether it's speaking, whether it's uh, opening yourself up for rejection and things like that, you're just like, well, am I, if I don't throw it out there, hey, what else can happen? You're going to say yes or no. Mm-hmm. There's only two logical outcomes here. Uh, so it, it's actually kind of helped me in, in doing this to, to kind of have a better understanding when I look at investments and look at certain things, having that background and, and understanding of the dynamic of what are they not asking and why are they not asking it? Why are they not being more forthcoming with whether it be information, whether it be, you know, different things. And as a business owner, you can kind of reverse engineer back and go, okay, well, if it was my product, how would I sell it? And you can kind of, is it going to work? Is it not going to work? Is, are they having, do they have good execution? Um, do they have good funding? Do they have X, Y, Z? It's just a matter of being able to look at something and, and now having more experience in business investing, et cetera. I was always interested in it, as I said, when I played, but once you retire, you obviously got a lot more time, a lot more uh, time to invest in understanding things a little bit more than just be like, I I see this place is always busy. Can you take a look at this stock? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you, which, def- you definitely dive all deeper. At some point. In, in kind of r- wrapping it up here is um, yourself included, obviously, but we've talked so much about you. What would you say was a common trait of of the of the best players? And again, athleticism aside, if I may, I yep. know I know in professional sports it's a big part of the equation. But what would you say separated, you know, the greats from everyone else, other than just genetic, you know, makeup uh, that perhaps a listener can hear and apply that thing to their business or their lives? I would say drive, will, and determination. It just, they're all incredibly driven. Their will to win, their will to succeed is greater than anybody. And, and, and they are unwavering in their determination to succeed and, and be the best. Are we always going to be the best? There's always somebody richer, somebody bigger, somebody stronger, somebody whatever. Mm-hmm. But you, you're in you. You have to push yourself to want to be the best, and then find how out how to do that. Like, what is what are the markers? How do you prove that you're getting better? How do you prove all these things? And and it's having an understanding that there's going to be rejection, there's going to be failure, there's going to be all these things. But you're going to push through that, and you're going to find out. You're going to find a way to be successful. You're going to find a way to win whatever whatever it is you're doing. You're trying to win a big contract. You're f- trying to win this business. You're trying to win over somebody to distribute the, the journey, whatever it is. It can be anything, but it's preparation, determination, will, drive. All of those things are always all-encompassing when you're talking about somebody who's at the top of their game. So will drive determination. That was the most common thread amongst the best players you've ever played with. Uh, last question. And they're always, and yeah, yeah. typically they're always the hardest workers in the room, which is probably, um, 
and the and, output of which the, is of, why they're typically the leaders. Yeah. I mean, it's always oh, the best player is the captain. Not all the time, but typically they are because typically they're the hardest workers. Well, if you have will, drive, and determination to be the best, as you said, yeah. you almost always eventually recognize that, well, then you need to work to get there. Yeah. And so if you're willing to work more than anyone else, you are yeah. by definition the hardest worker. Is there a specific resource, book, um, thing like that you would recommend an, an, a listener or, or someone watching this podcast, like something that helped you or that you heard helped you? Obviously, you, you touched briefly on a six-week uh, uh, sports psychologist, yeah. but like, is there something that you that you're aware of or you've experienced that helps people in increasing their will, their drive to determination? Uh, I don't know if reading a book is going to do that. Mm -hmm. Personally, uh, I, I, it's, it's quasi innate in you, but it's also, if you're not passionate about something, you're not going to have a will or a drive for it. I mean, if you're not passionate about being the best or passionate about your job or passionate about doing the best work you can, whatever that is, I don't care what you're doing. If you're a janitor, if you're in real estate, if you're an athlete, if you're whatever, if you have the ability to be the best at what you're doing, it's going to rub off on other people around you, and they're going to sh see the pride that you take in your work, uh, the drive that you have to be successful and, and be the best that you can at whatever it is. That rubs off on people. That, that You exude that aura when you're pushing yourself to be the best and you're writing a note to somebody. You're like, you go through three iterations because you want it to be good. Mm -hmm. I want to send this kid a nice note. I want to reply to this person. I want to do X, Y, Z. Or I'm looking for a mentor. I'm looking for a mentor. That's right. Write it properly. And if you don't know how, Google it. Read a book. I mean, it's you can figure it out pretty you'll quick. You'll figure it out. Yeah, you'll figure it out. If you yeah. really want it, you're gonna you're everything is, as we say, figure-outable. <laughs> That's right. We'll figure it out. I'm going to use that. That's a good one. Chris, I can't thank you enough for, for being on this show. Uh, I very much enjoyed it. I am even more excited about tasting this Canadian whiskey journey. I am, as we were talking about earlier, he's on his, what was it? 75, 75 hard, hard. I'm, yes. I'm, I'm not nearly as tough as this guy. So I'm, <laughs> I'm on uh 31 day you know, not as hard. I, I'm doing the sober October with some buddies where, you know, you work out 500 calorie workout every day and obviously 31 days, but whatever the first Saturday is in November, I don't know about 9am because my wife might no, be just Nice concerned. little afternoon. No, no, no. Soaking the rays. For and... me, it's, it's 9pm. There's a, a chance I've, I've got all four of my kids. Uh, if not asleep in bed, I'm going to, I'm going to tucked in pour a nice little glass of journey with two big, drops to uh, or, or a big rock. You don't you know, need the drops. If you got the rock. Generally, I like the big rock, but if I really want to taste it, which I usually would for the first time, I'm I tasting would do neat, a couple drops of water. Cold. So whatever that Saturday is nine o'clock central time, that's where I'm going to be. I can't thank you enough. You got to give me one of those shirts, man. That's yes, sir. And by the cool way, swag. another thing as it relates to mentality, I was just sitting here thinking, if you don't know, like we talk about mindset, oh, we're doing 75 hard, you're doing mm -hmm. that. If you want to challenge yourself, if you think, oh, I'm not disciplined enough, find something to do that yeah. proves you can be disciplined, proves you can do something that is out of the norm that you don't normally do. I never did 75 hard before. I mean, I lived it kind of when I was playing. Like there were certain things you did and didn't do, but 
I've never done anything like that. I'm just like, well, you know what? I can do that. It's just a matter of setting your mind. Like I'm doing this. Prove to yourself that you have the ability to be disciplined. Can I piggyback on that? Yeah. Surround yourself with people who are more disciplined or push themselves. Like, cause it sounds like you were willing, but it, your, your buddy who started yeah. it was like, Hey, and I've had Chris, a bunch I'm of friends do, that have yeah. done it and you see yeah. the results and you yeah. see kind of what they've I done. I talk and, about all the time. I, I want to be the least motivated or least accomplished person in the room because that's like my way of describing me surrounding myself with people who are much more driven than I am because, because yeah. for right or for wrong, that will drive me to do yeah. more. 100%. It sounds like, um, oh, you are a very driven human being, but your, your friend who started this, like drove you to at least for 75 days to, yeah. to do more. Try myself out, see if it works. Um, I'm sure you'll be fine. Uh, Chris, <laughs> it's been a, a great time uh, having you on the show. Hopefully, um, you said you're here until Sunday? Yeah. Enjoy the yeah. town. Thank you. And we, uh, we shall. Look forward to sharing a drink with you soon. Yes, absolutely. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you.